So, Reverend, what have you been doing this holiday spirit to keep the spirit alive for the Halloween season? Well, basically, I've just been uh, spending time watching, you know, different uh, scary movies. Uh, like today, for instance, we've started in on the Conjuring universe and uh, kind of starting with Conjuring 1 and kind of going on from there. Uh, splitting them up, though, a little bit and adding Amityville in between because I feel like that's a good little, uh, you know, uh, tie in between Conjuring 1 and Conjuring 2 based upon where they stop and where the next one starts. Um, other than that, you know, basically just, uh, you know, putting up decorations, you know, just, uh, you know, do, uh, reading, you know, scary, you know, uh, novels and, and that sort of thing. Um, what have you been doing to uh, kind of get in the holiday spirit, as it were? Well, I definitely blew up the house with decorations. I think I've shown that off enough. I had quite a budget this year, so we made yeah. that happen. I've never had I've never had a Halloween budget except for grabbing a few things from the Dollar Tree and, you know, a few things here and there wherever I see them. But this time I really got to go out and get the crazy stuff. And really just similar to you, basically watching movies. I have not watched like a universe of movies other than the typical campy horror films. So, you know, Friday the 13th, um, Nightmare on Elm Street. The kids love those films. Mm -hmm. So, and then whatever film you're going to make me watch and acknowledge, <laughs> that's pretty much what I've been doing because, yeah, I love to get scared, but I hate to get scared. And that's, I mean, pretty much about it. That's most of the excitement we can have right now. Oh, what? Uh, it seems that we've got uh, some visitors. Uh, cue the music. Hello and welcome uh, to the inaugural uh, episode of the Death Holler podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Dr. Death, and joining me on the spirit box, you may have heard her disembodied voice, La Urena. How are you doing, La Urena? I am doing wonderful. It's so great to be here. <laughs> yeah, um, I found your way into the, one of the darkest recesses of Appalachia, so congratulations on that. I'm sure that that's the highlight of your uh, <laughs> your day. It was a freaky trip to be to be you know real. <laughs> um, basically, uh, for our guest, uh, might want to break down what exactly we uh, plan on doing with this podcast. Um, basically, uh, we're just a couple of horror geeks. We uh, really uh, love scary movies. We like discussing them, talking about them, breaking them down. Uh, my favorite thing is personally the, you know, researching them and finding out the, if there is such a thing, the history behind the movie, behind the scenes, um, uh, any kind of, uh, you know, basically, uh, uh, history or real life stories, if there's any connected to them. So, uh, what we planned on doing is, uh, going season by season, breaking them down, uh, 13 episodes, 
discussing you know a certain theme each season. Uh, this, the particular theme this season that we had planned is, uh, I would like to say the title would be The, the Devil is in the Details, uh, basically all things related to the devil. And um, it's kind of inspired by the first choice uh, that La Urena actually chose. Uh, so you can kind of blame yourself, La Urena, for the, the movie you had to watch for this event. Um, but um, before we get to that, um, I, there's a few bits of news that I happened to see while we were um, while I was per- perusing uh, Bloody Disgusting, and uh, I just thought they would be interesting to bring up. The first little bit of news that I saw was that uh, Netflix is actually doing an animated version of uh, 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 Resident Evil, and uh, it's called Resident Evil Infinite Darkness. Uh, it stars uh, the characters of Leon Kennedy and Claire Redfield, which are two of the most popular um, characters from the series. Oh, yeah, by far. <clears throat> Yeah, they, they're the, the characters that happen to be uh, involved in Resident Evil 2, which by all means is probably one of the best ones. They even did a remake recently of it, which drastically improved the graphics, for better or worse, on some of the character models. But the, the actual the game itself is just it's scary as hell, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I was actually, uh, I had a doctor that took me off of playing them because I was having, I had a major anxiety attack that we weren't sure. We thought I was having heart issues. Oh my gosh. And it was actually, <laughs> it was Resident Evil. Um, oh my God, I forget which one it was. I All I know is on the island and I was, um, oh, I wish I knew the name of this game. I, I Code Veronica. There we go. Oh, yeah. That, it was Code that, Veronica. And that one actually that stars one Claire. Anxiety. Yeah. 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 So I had me an anxiety attack, and a doctor did put me on medication for a very short while, and I was uh, told not to play those games. I can understand why. They are, you know, like I said, they, they nightmare-inducing for a lot of people. But um, it looks... Great games, though. They are, and it looks like the series is going to be pretty good. The character models look great. They actually look like slightly aged versions of the characters from the uh, original Resident Evil 2 with, you know, much better CGI, of course. Um, they actually look like they've modeled Leon after his character out of Resident Evil 4, which is a great game in its own. So I'm I'm in, I'm really excited for the series. Really interested to see what that comes out of it, and um, I, I just thought it was really interesting. I didn't know that they it had even anything like that on the horizon after those crappy movies, uh, the live action ones. I'm I'm ready for anything that they're doing that kind of ties it back into the game canon, basically. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> the uh, next thing I, I noticed was something that I thought you might be interested in since you're in anime. It's a uh, it's a uh, high rise uh, invasion is the name of it, and it looks like it's kind of a crazy series where. There's a, a girl who's kind of trapped on a high-rise building, and she's she has no way of getting down. All the floor access is cut off, and she has to basically go from building to building. But the the, the kicker is that she's being chased by a bunch of psychopaths and masks, and they're all trying to kill her, and she's got to kill them to keep from uh, basically dying herself. So I didn't know what you thought about that whenever I uh, sent that trailer to you about uh, the, the new series that's coming on Netflix. You know, it was a really fast-paced trailer, and I love that in any anime. Give me the action, and man, it did it delivered. Because what I got from it was that kill or be killed vibe, 
And you could tell just off of the one and a half minute trailer that this girl did not want to kill, but she quickly learned if I do not defend myself, I'm going to die and oh. die horrifically. So I'm actually pretty excited about it. Yeah, I, I think it looks great. I mean, I don't know, I mean, what's going to come out of it. I mean, it's, but it's just, you know, crazy action from the get go in the trailer. So I'm assuming that the show's going to be the same way. Um, it's it just, had a little bit of a purge vibe to it. Had a little bit of that. There was uh, some kind of thing that a girl says to her in the trailer about how there's uh, there's uh, l- only one person can have access to the helicopter and, 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 you know, that they were going to have to fight to the death over that. So there's going to be kind of a, you know, a whole, uh, you know, fight to the death, Thunderdome type vibe to it going on too. So that, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, the masks were creepy, too. They all had, like, different masks. Yeah, and they all had different uh, ways that they went about killing, it looked like. There was one guy in there that had, like, a top hat type thing, and he was, like, going around with a sniper rifle, and that was his, you know, go-to way. So um, I'm interested in seeing what comes out of it. It's kind of a different take on the, the whole, you know, slasher genre, as it looks like. So, um Yep. The uh, third bit of news, and, and this kind of ties into the film that we're going to be discussing tonight, is um, <laughs> is uh, Screen Gems has uh, came out with a movie, uh, or has a movie in the works called the uh, the Pope's Exorcist, and it's a film about the life of Gabriel uh, Amorth, uh, who was uh, said to have performed over a th- uh, tens of thousands of uh, exorcisms. Um, and it was actually already covered in a documentary by the, uh, film director, William Friedkin, who we will be going into a little bit later. Um, and, and the, um, so, and the name of the documentary by Friedkin was the, the devil and father Amorth. So it's kind of a, it's going to be kind of an interesting, uh, look into the life, uh, or, you know, behind somebody who's, you know, really closely involved with exorcisms, which really ties into tonight's topic. But, uh, I didn't know what your thoughts were on that bit of news. Uh, well, all I have to say is Jesus Christ, because <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I know we've all seen our fair share of exorcism films and reading up on it, what's involved with an exorcism. It makes me tired. He has performed tens of thousands of exorcisms? Yeah, it's crazy. Some of these things are... It's like are literally s- boxing the devil. Yeah, well, some of these things are said to go on for months on end, so I can't even imagine. I mean, he's if he's did that many, he's literally spent his life, you know, doing nothing but that. So it's, uh, it's kind of a crazy thought, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what comes out of the movie and, you know, see if it's a, a worthy successor to uh, especially tonight's film um, that we're discussing, which... Uh, might as well bring up it's a little little known film called the exorcist um released in 1973 i believe it was uh based upon a novel by william blatty and also many people might not know this also based on a true story actually um I, did, did you do a bit of research on that and kind of come up with the uh the, the backstory on that there was i know there was something about a kid named roland doe that uh you know obviously a pseudonym protect his identity who uh, went through basically all the things that Regan goes through in the movie The Exorcist but he went through that and I think like the 1930s or something like that so I did do a little bit of research I didn't do so much research on the exorcism the actual exorcism of the child which by the way I got a name of Robbie 
Um, I've heard that name multiple times. Yeah, I, um, I heard that name mentioned once, and then there was another R name that they gave to him. But and uh, apparently he was alive at the time that the, or I mean, obviously at the time that the Exorcist, you know, was released in movie theaters. So I would really like to know what that, you know, guy thought of seeing basically his the worst year of his life basically broadcast to you know millions and millions of people, but. Well, from what I gather, from what little I've heard about specifically him, was that they really did their best to try to respect his privacy and his wishes to not be involved as much. Um, I do know the priest really tried to keep the identity and everything under wraps. Gave, Other than saying that everything you heard was legit, didn't give any kind of identifying details to kind of really put out so i don't know for sure that we 100 percent know who this well i guess it was in the newspaper so it was really no people caught on real fast what was going on with this kid so yeah it, there's that i did the research on the um basically ultimately like hey what is an exorcism you know and the catholic beliefs being a you know um a good wholesome catholic myself <laughs> yeah. i have that background and and we'll go into that in a little bit when we discuss the movie. But yeah, I think that really drastically uh, alters your view on uh, how frightening this movie, that in particular, is because uh, uh, being of that faith, uh, it's, it hits a little bit closer to home. I would imagine it's a little closer to home. You would think that I would be a little bit more confident, like I have the tools. Should I ever be put in that situation? But I'm going to be real honest right now. No, I do not feel that way. I was scared to death watching this. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I can see it to a certain degree. I mean, you're raised in the faith. You, you know, you hear about all these things. I mean, it's 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 made real. I mean, where a lot of people, it's kind of like, oh, well, that's just something, you know, in this, you know, this old movie, you know, which it's old now. But, uh, but I mean, for for those in the faith, I mean, it's a very real thing. The devil is a thing, and you know, and and being possessed is a very real possibility. So, I mean, I could see that being, you know, that, adding just that much more to the, you know, the, just the fright factor of everything. Yep. Um. So. All right. So, what are we getting into? Uh, well, what did you come up with when it came to the history of exorcisms before we actually get into the exorcist itself? <laughs> I came up with kind of my own. You, when you start going through all the details, you start to kind of like, hey, wait a second. This kind of reminds me of this situation. So ultimately an exorcism, if you Google what is an exorcism, you're going to get it's basically a specific form of prayer that the church uses against the power of the devil. A real simple and straightforward definition. Ultimately, that's what you think of when you think of the exorcism. I think everybody kind of has their own idea of what an exorcism is. Um, there's, I, I did research at least three different religious backgrounds and how they handle exorcisms. Um, after researching that, if you ask me, in my opinion, an exorcism is basically a hostage takeover. <laughs> And the priest is serving as a quotation mark negotiator to basically find out who, what, where, when, and why, but mostly who to basically coerce the yeah, entity out. I, I 
can't disagree with that. Everything that I've seen and everything that, I, that I've read about, I mean, you know, excluding the Hollywood, you know, razzle-dazzle that they add to everything, the, you know, the pea soup and all that that we'll get into, uh, excluding all that, it, it basically uh, amounts to somebody is basically trapped inside their own body and the, the priest is trying to get them out before, I mean, well, in the case of the, the I mean, you know, in the case out. of the novel, at least, uh, uh, Regan was dying. I mean, I, it's not really made clear in the movie, but I, I'll just, you know, jump the gun and say in, in the book, she was like, you know, one week away from dying, like her body was shutting down. So, I mean, and that... Oh, it was made not super clear in the movie, but there was a scene where Karis goes and puts, is checking her heart, and he flat out says, she's too weak, I don't know that she'll make it. Not in those exact words, but... Alluding to, yeah, we got to do something. Yeah, and, and I, I do, her. I do remember that you know? line, and that that was like a little bit that he, th- that Vladdy threw in there as the screenwriter, and you know, obviously the the novel writer to kind of connect it back. But he really painted a picture in the novel about just how weak she really was. Like they, I mean, it, she she was just on the verge of death, and it was, uh, I mean, that's the reason. Well, we'll get to it, but that's the reason he does what he does uh, to to get the the entity out. But yeah, I. Yeah, but getting back to what out, you're saying, yeah. I mean, it's that's exactly what it is. I mean, they're they're doing everything in their power. I mean, they're you know trying to compel the the you know whatever it is to to leave the body so that they you know it can so that the person can find peace again, basically. Yeah, and every religion is different. I mean, for the most part, like okay, so for like Judaism, um, it's. Look, and I hate to say this, and I don't want to be disrespectful. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But when you hear about how they do their exorcisms, it sounds kind of like a party. <laughs> like, seriously, they have up to 10 higher-ups involved. Um, and mostly they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to uh, drive a divic out. And I'm sure you've heard yes, of a divic before. Yes, I have, yes. So, you know, it attaches itself to the soul, um, can cause mental illness, which can seriously sometimes this is why exorcisms are not performed because it could just be mental illness versus you know an entity um you know which acts like a parasite basically gets itself into your body and there's got to be a way to get it out um ultimately in judaism um you have to be a religious higher up to perform it um you have to be basically at will to fight this evil spirit um, they have up to 10 people at one time. Um, they get anointed with, you know, basically the equivalent of a holy water oil. Um, and they call upon the good spirits, basically, to, for okay. assistance. Um, you know, um, and ultimately they, they start doing the interrogation process. They start interviewing the demon for info. You know, who are you? Because pretty much in every religion, if you can find out who the demon is, Basically, you can command them to get the fuck out. Yeah, I mean, they're they're trying to basically, you know, drive drive home who who it is specifically, so they they can use the power of the name. I mean, that that's something that you see in a lot of. I mean, it sounds kind of woo woo, but you see it in a lot of things. If you can give a name to something, you have power over it, basically, and that's that's why they're always trying to find the name because once you have the name. I mean, for I mean, it can be used against you. I mean, if you you know invoke the name of something, especially three times, and that's one reason why we're not going to repeat the name on this podcast of the particular entity in the movie, uh, or well, what what is assumed to be the entity. I don't think it really was, but we'll get into that too. But um, 
I have a nickname, so we'll we'll get to that but when we get once to Once you that. have the name of it, you can use it to to drive it out. And that that's one of the main things it seems like through as a main, you know, through line on most of these uh, possession situations that they're trying to, to drive down just exactly what entity it is so that they can use the name of the entity itself as a driving force to, to you know, to yeah. Drive it out, yeah. And that's the thing that I liked watching The Exorcist specifically is there is a scene where the spirit basically says she's in here with us, alluding that maybe there's more than one spirit and then in another scene that we'll also discuss, you have the priest that's like, there's only one. And that is a really good trick because if you can get the priest or the higher up or the rabbi or whoever to believe there's multiple spirits, then you're going to have a harder time trying to figure out oh, who okay. you're dealing with. The spirit can pretend it's somebody else so that way it doesn't have it's, to get it's, the fuck out. It's crazy in the novel. It it ties back into, I mean, we're, we're just... For everybody involved, uh, the you know the season's name is the devil in the details. It's you know about Lucifer is what we're kind of hinting at is what the season the overall theme is going to be about. This movie's kind of a cheat. It's it's not the devil. It it's some other entity. It but in but it, I, th- I find it funny in the book when it's trying to uh, throw people off the scent, as it were. Um, and I don't think this is in the movie, but I, I thought it was interesting. In the book it, it mentions you know at one point it says I am the devil. You know and it you know. Nope, that happened um, in the movie too. And I remember that I was so excited. I was like, "Oh, that's how we're going to tie it to the devil in the details," because she said, "And I'm the devil. Uh, you know, of course." And and just going back to what you said earlier, I just love that line from Father uh, Marin, who he just walks in there and he just looks at Karis and he's like, "There's just one. It's lying to you. It's just there's one." It's like he's so confident, like he because I mean. He's dealt with it before. It it almost killed him previously, you know. And we we'll get to all that too, but oh yeah, you know. I just I just love that scene. He just you know just such confidence. I mean, and that that's you know par for the course for his you know character. But he just you know just looks up. It's like there's only one. Don't don't let it lie to you. You know, <laughs> it's a high ladder. Yeah. There can yeah. only be one. Um, basically. So yeah. So basically, you know, going forward with the. You know, Judaism, they basically say a bunch of prayers. Um, Then they have like a celebration of sorts after they basically drive the devil out. It's basically their equivalent of like once it's once the once it's out, you basically have to like get it to stay out. Well, I, basically like, I can't say that I disagree with that. I mean, I mean, if you're in, <laughs> if you're in that situation for that long and you've, I mean, it's ran you down so bad. I mean, you know, why not throw a party? Why not, you know, enjoy life as it were? I mean, that's that's probably one it's of the a best party ways. And the you entity know. is not invited. <laughs> exactly, basically is what it comes down to. And this is where I look at. I have to give credit where credit is due. But I was listening to a podcast. I will mention it shamelessly because you give people credit. It was a podcast called. Um, oh, great. I don't even know the podcast name. Oh, my God. Hi, I'm Drunk is what the podcast was called. Okay. And they were talking about how they would have loved to seen a rabbi with a cowboy hat basically telling <laughs> this entity to go on get, and they referred to this rabbi as the Texorcist. The Texorcist. That that would make and a pretty I good movie. Died. I, I, Texas, I'd watch it. I, I could see that. I mean, this is going to be for you know horror book m- nerds out there, but I I could see Joe R. Lansdale actually writing that. I mean, he he's pretty big <laughs> in the scene. He he would write the Texas. That would be a, a you know the something Texas. he would write. 
Oh my God, I would, I'd let, yeah. I, I think we need to make that happen. Can we write a movie? We should write a movie. <laughs> Look at this is our first podcast and I know we're new to this, but we could do it. What, what, I mean, it, well. It, let's it, write The Texorcist. There, there's, I mean, you got, let's be honest. There, there's a bunch of bad horror movies out there. We, we could at least be better than some of those. I mean, yeah. zombie strippers, come on. We, we can't, we, we have to be better than that. <laughs> oh my God. I've seen some horrible B movies. Yeah, shoot, let's do it. Let's let's make the text exist. Okay, so <laughs> I don't know if I can move on from the text. A, a little, but a we have to. A little tangent to throw it back to what you were saying earlier. I remember there was. It's been probably six years ago now, but it was crazy. There was. It was on eBay. Somebody was trying to sell a, a like a, a chest or something that you know, like a locked chest that supposedly held a divic in it, and uh, it no. got a it got a ton of money just for the novelty of it. And I'm just like, who in the hell would buy this? I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not gonna do that. That's um. That's a. That's gonna be a no from me. Yeah. It's it's, I, and not just a no, a hell no. I, I don't blame you. I, whenever I saw that, I was just like, okay, you, somebody really needs to study up on this stuff. They're inviting a lot of bad juju in their home if they go this route. But, you know, hey, you know. Pandora's box, man. Read the story. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so basically, yeah, that covers the, you know, Judaism and how they perform. Their, basically, they have a, they have an exorcism party, which, right on, okay. Um, Lutherans really not much different same thing they believe in demons or devils possessing you basically super jacked up powerful demons and you know the 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 symptoms are pretty typical as in any other exorcism you got people that look kind of sickly acting different um i guess speaking in tongues is really not common Okay. In most exorcisms. So speaking a different language, they really don't. That's not something. Um, the exorcist speaking on that, it's kind of cool because when Karis thought she was speaking another language, it was just her speaking backwards, which, which was interesting. It's it's even better in the novel because when you're reading it, you can actually see the word backwards. See the and, words. And yes. like whenever the he asked the demon the first time, what is your name? It says this word that's total gibberish whenever you read it forward. But, but when you read it backwards, it just says, I am no one. And it's perfect. Yeah. I mean, you know. And I loved that because that is basically the demon giving an answer, but not specifying who it is. Exactly. Which is interesting. Um, in Lutheran, and I'm pretty sure this is the same with Judaism. I didn't address it, but pretty much in Judaism, Lutherans, and um, Catholicism, they always bring in a physician to rule out illness. Um, you know, uh, illness or mental health issues, anything like that that could be the actual cause. It's rare that they actually think you need an exorcism. Obviously, these are not things that commonly happen. Um, and Ju- or not Judaism, excuse me. Um, Lutherans, ultimately, they just say they get the higher ups together. They say some prayers, um, an Apostles Creed, basically, and our father. They, they just pray the demon out. And it's pretty straightforward. It's it, They don't make it seem like it. Catholicism is the granddaddy of exorcism. That is the the final round and (laughs) it's it's the it's for the heavyweights only so you know when you get into the catholicism i mean they do they do mention speaking in tongues um there's a lot of self-harm that is involved you know for the person that's possessed um looking ill 
um, violent, ultimately, so much involved. And it's hard to get authorization for a Catholic, you know, exorcism to be performed. You have the minor exorcisms, which that can be almost be performed by anybody. Um, obviously, for a Catholic person, they would want it to be somebody of Catholic faith and that has at least had a few of their, you know, their communion, their confirmation, baptized at least, you know. Usually communion at best or at least is what they want you to have if you're going to try to condemn something out. But for the major majors, um, that's where you got to get permission, you know. Yeah, they um, uh, they do a pretty good job in The Conjuring. There's a, there's a scene where uh, Ed Warren, you know, is, is talking and, you know, it's, it's especially toward the end of the, the movie and like, you know, just the shits hit the fan, uh, the, the main mother's dying and, you know, and the, going to take the daughter with her. And like he, uh, you know, everybody's like looking at him and he's like, I can't do this. They, I'm not authorized to, you know, to do, you know, exorcisms that the, the church has to give me, you know, has to give somebody that, you know, the say so to do this. So, I mean, there, there's steps, you know, to this, you oh, know, yeah. And you have to follow them to make sure that you are not going to fuck someone up, basically, because you have to make sure they are possessed, ultimately, because you're not going to see what you see on the exorcist. You're not going to see head spinning. You might see throwing up. I've heard of um, real life cases where people are spitting up nails. That's crazy. You know? That is obviously <laughs> blood. The... And the nails are supposed to represent the stigmata. Okay. You that's... know what that is, right? Yes. Yes. The the nails so... and Christ palms is you know and, and feet so um it's it's kind of crazy in the, in the novel there's 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 vomiting in it but the the worst thing for me is just he goes into graphic detail about just liquid diarrhea just everywhere <clears throat> just just pouring out of her all and the beds have to be changed constantly and i'm just sitting there i'm like part of me's glad it's not in the movie but then at the same time i'm just like well you know i I could see that more than the vomiting because, I mean, the girl hadn't eaten in forever. I don't know how she was throwing up anything, to be honest with you, but that's a whole other oh, yeah. rant, you know. <laughs> and that's scary. It's because, like, it's weird because you would think that, in my opinion, if you are, um, if you have a host, okay, if you are a parasite and you have a host, you have to keep your host alive. So why would you, I mean, I guess it was said in the film, you know, till she's rotting in hell. You know, with the rest of us, I think I think in the novel he does a little bit better job of that. He basically says it's so that it's not. I think it's Marin that says it, and he says it to Karis if, I, if I'm remembering right. But he basically says it's not it's not for her. She's going to heaven regardless because she's an innocent. It's to dishearten yeah. all those around uh, around her. So basically, her death and 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 the attacks on her is to dishearten and uh, make. People, the people around her lose faith in God. Basically, it's it's, it's basically weaken them too. Because at yeah. that point, the uh, the entity can take over another if they wanted to. Yeah, if they're able to. But I thought that was interesting. It wasn't. I mean, he, he basically went and said it's it's not for the person that's attacking. It's for everybody else. And that's not the only place I heard that. that. Is I, I was listening to insane. I was listening to a podcast myself about the issue, and they had a real life. Uh, he was a psychologist. He wasn't an actual exorcist, but he went with Catholics. You know, as oh, a, you know, I know who you're talking about. And and he kind of went in there, and he you know uh, ruled out. I mean, that was you know going back to what you were saying. He ruled out whether or not they were mental cases or not but um and most of the time they are 
And yeah, and he said a lot of times they are. But um, basically, I mean, you know, according to him, it was he said that he felt sorriest uh, for, not for the people who were possessed because that the host of the the podcast it's Beyond the Darkness. I mean, for anybody that wants to you know look it up, but um, he was basically telling the host he's like it's not it wasn't the person she was a good person there was nothing about her her husband was a good man it was just to dishearten the husband and everybody around her and make them lose faith in Christ. Is is the is what yeah. he truly believed that the attack was? So, it's the it's, question is though is how do they attach themselves to that person? A lot of faiths believe that you have little to no faith. Maybe you've dabbled in the occult, the dark occult, because you know a lot a lot of Ouija boards. Yeah, Ouija board. Oh God, Ouija boards are like the number one <laughs> culprit. I swear. Just about every time. I mean, it's it's seriously the number one. And and anybody you hear talking about it, if you're, I mean, in, in fact, the, the true story. The, I do remember hearing this. Uh, the Roland Doe, who was the the true life uh, inspiration behind the Exorcist. He played with a Ouija board right before it happened, and what happened oh, yeah, was to, to reach his aunt. It to reach his aunt because his aunt was a spiritualist. You know, back in those days, they were the you know those people who you know used Ouija boards all the time to commune with spirits on the other side. But but like the podcast, or I, I think it was uh, actually something I watched on YouTube was saying that the aunt actually told uh, would would have told the family if they if she would have known anything about this would have informed them that you know people who are not skilled in using a Ouija board should not use one because it can open up, you know, access to other, you know, evil spirits, basically, that you're not intending to contact. Oh, yeah. But, but see, how do you become a skilled Ouija board? You always have to start as a beginner. I, I don't know. I, I I heard that, and I'm it's just like... like you level <laughs> up, like you don't get fucked over by a demon, so you level up? It's either that, or you get possessed a couple of times, and I guess you get your punch card, and whenever you get 10, you're <laughs> magically a spiritualist who's immune to it. I You know, I don't know. Maybe there's a Subway, you know... At, you know, uh, card for that. I, who knows? I personally know so many, not so many, I make it sound like all my friends are witches, but I know <laughs> quite a few white witches and they're only of, you know, positivity. They're not, n- none of the occult, none of this. And none of them think the Ouija board is funny or are, is a useful tool at all. Um, and just like me being Catholic, being like, hell no, we never, we don't even make jokes about that. We don't draw them. We don't do nothing. Um, I even have, you know, uh, from the show Stranger Things, how they have that ABC thing, and she was oh, speaking to yeah, her son yeah, through the lights. I do have one of those, but one of my witch friends was like, no, that's a Ouija board. It's, it it <laughs> is. Like, it's funny. I have to get that out of my house? <laughs> it's, it's funny because you, if, you, if you binge watch the Conjuring series, going back to that, uh, you know, the first movie, um, I believe there's a scene where somebody's playing with one of them in that. But in the second movie, The Conjuring 2, it's this little, when the little girl comes home right before everything starts happening to her in that one, she's got like a uh, little piece of paper basically and it looks like i don't know if you saw you know what i'm talking about those ransom notes that you know they used to have send to people that oh, were like yeah cut up bits of different newspapers with different size it looked like that and she was playing around with it and that thing is what brought on supposedly the infield haunting so jesus it, christ <laughs> yeah, don't don't mess with it i just want a decoration in my house okay not even the ouija board <laughs> Okay, so going back to uh, the granddaddy of exorcisms, you got the Catholics and um, the major exorcisms, like what you would see with, you know, Reagan and um, the exorcist is um, basically 
got to get you one of them higher ups. They have to be, they have to go through some training. I, I heard through the grapevine there is actual exorcist school. I don't know where it's at. Okay. I don't know what they teach, but I don't want to go there. I don't know why um, anybody would sign up for that personally, but you know, I, I, mean, I feel like you get pushed into it. I feel like you keep leveling up, <laughs> you know, in the priest world and the bishop world, you know, keep your hands off the little boys. You have to be pure of heart, you know? <laughs> Stay away from the altar, altar children. The, the ones who, boys the ones who've not had been, that have not had to been moved like three or four times to different towns. Uh, they're, it's yeah, like exactly. They're, you're the guy. I'm Catholic, and I will address that. That is no bueno. <laughs> but anyway, so basically, you know, a Catholic, it's uh, they they restrain their possessed because shit gets real. Oh, it's um, it's bad. And it starts with the typical, you know, multiple prayers. You got your Our Father. You got the Hail Mary full of grace. Um, They got quite a few creeds. And then it's on like Donkey Kong. Um, I'm not going to get too into detail. This is where I'm going to end this conversation of the exorcisms. And then we can go on to the film. But basically, there is a written procedure that was most recently updated. I would say 1999, early 2000, maybe. Um... It's basically a ritual, it's a ritual book. I cannot pronounce it in Latin. No, I'm Latina, but I do not speak Latin. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and basically, like you said earlier, it's once you pop, the fun don't stop. You cannot stop this ritual once you start it. You do it from beginning to end. And this book, which is all in Latin, is just under 600 pages. Oh my gosh. Of a doctrine to basically exercise the demon out, the demon, the devil, whatever it may be, the entity. And it can take days, it could take weeks, it can take months. The only thing I regret not researching is what is what is the longest exorcist, exorcism ever. Like, how long was it? So. Yeah, I... <sighs> I don't know the exact details on that, but I, I know I've read uh, at least six months on some of them. I mean, it's it's crazy how long some of these things continue on, and they're just I, I can't even imagine um, the the priest like what they're. I mean, it just has to wear them down, mind, body, and soul. I mean, by the time that they're done with this thing. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, uh, FYI, I have the name that was given, the full name that was given to me of the kid that was involved, which inspired The Exorcist, and it was Robbie Mannheim. Uh, that is one of the names I did hear, so. Yes. Okay, so maybe you have a few more, too. Okay. <laughs> so what are we on to next? Well, uh, at this point, I think we should just go into the movie itself and kind of discuss, yeah, let's you know. get right to it, huh? Um I guess we should start out by just basically uh, going over the principal players in the in the movie and kind of the novel. You have uh, Chris McNeil, uh, that is Ellen Burstyn, uh, that uh, in the movie. Uh, that's the actress who's playing that character. Uh, she's the mother to Regan. Uh, she's an actress um, and uh, an atheist, which I think might play uh, into. Glad the, you said that. Might play into the whole, uh, you know, later possession. You've got uh, Regan McNeil herself, played by the great Linda Blair, uh, which we'll get into that later, but uh, a lot of people don't give her credit for what she put up with and how good of an actor she was for that age. Um, she's 11-year-old daughter to Chris, uh, very creative, re- very smart. 
plays with a Ouija board. I mean, it's in the movie. It's it's. Uh, I, I, we'll get into that in a minute too. I don't. I don't like the little small, small change they made from novel to a movie as far as like how that's introduced. But she does play with one. Speaks to an entity that she calls Captain Howdy, and then things go bananas after that. Um, they're not so prominent in the movie. They're quite a bit in the novel. But you've got Willie and Carl Engstrom, played by Gina Petreska and. Rudolph Schundler, respectively. They're the wife and husband housekeepers for Chris. Um, you've got Sharon Spencer, uh, played by Kitty Wynn. She's the tutor to Regan, uh, young uh, female, uh, kind of a social secretary to Chris. Not really elaborated in the movie, but that's another thing she does. Uh, Father Damien Karras, uh, Jason Miller uh, in the movie. Um, psychologist, Jesuit priest. Biggest thing about him, Rocky Balboa, extraordinary. <laughs> it, we'll get into that too. That was a, I thought that was quite a big change in his character from the the novel. To be honest with you, whenever I when I saw him and I saw his build, it didn't really match what they. Blatty gave gave him more of like a runner's, you know, seventies, you know, like build or something. He the way he described him is I, he reminded me more of. Um, the late uh, Freddie Mercury then then he you know looked in the the movie so whatever but uh anyways uh biggest thing about uh Father Karras obviously is his crisis of faith and uh his uh relationship to his mother which is addressed in the movie quite well um you've got Father Lancaster Marin played by the great Max von Sydow um not in the movie very much but his scenes are very um powerful uh he's got one powerful, of my relevant one of the most iconic scenes in the movie i mean it's made the cover of the movie i love that scene where he pulls up in the you know in the taxi cab and there's all the fog rolling in in front of the you know the house and he's standing well, under the street light imagine the film without seeing that yeah that 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 scene to me makes the movie i mean him just standing there looking up at you know basically where at the evil that he's you know gonna have to take care of um You've got Burke Dennings, which doesn't really have much of a you know screen time at all in the movie, but that's played by Jack McGrowan. Uh, he's the film director and drunk uh, that uh, works with Chris. Uh, become uh, gets murdered by Regan uh, or the demon, which everyone you want to you know give the relevance to. Which brings us into the next character, the detective William Kinderman played by Lee Cobb, um, who is basically the, the older detective who goes around the movie trying to figure out who actually killed Burke Dennings, and whenever he finds out who actually did it, it kind of uh, throws him for a loop, to be honest with you. Um, you've got uh, uh, the, the only other character in the movie that really has much screen time is Father Dyer, played by William O'Malley, uh, kind of just a charismatic you know, friend to uh, Father Karras. Um, has a few more scenes, I believe, in the in the extended version of the movie, which we'll get into. But he just kind of, I mean, he's kind of a facilitator in, in the story between, uh, or at least in the novel between Chris and uh, and Father Karras. That's um, the impression I got in the film too. Yeah, he's he's kind of a go between. I mean, that's really what his whole purpose was. He he's the socialite that goes to Chris's party, and then whenever he and it, some of the things he sees there, you know, Regan's the infamous scene where she urinates on the carpet, you know, he he relays some of that back to Father Karras, and he's kind of the one that kind of keeps Karras grounded during some of his worst times. Um, like, all I got to say about Regan real quick, peeing in, in, on the carpet, is who hasn't pissed themselves at a party before? Okay, are you living if you haven't pissed yourself at a party? That's all I have to say. I'll take your word for that. Um <laughs> 
Um, but anyways, um, the movie starts out just like the novel, or at least uh, the regular version does. The theatrical version uh, starts out on Baghdad. You've got Father uh, Marin um, sitting there uh, at a, like a little outside uh, eatery, basically, um, and he just gets this. He's he's at an archaeological dig in Baghdad, basically, and he's and and he has this bad omen just bad feeling about things and he he goes back to the archaeological site and that's where he has to stare down with this huge statue of zuzu as i would call the creature i, I don't know what you came the pizza up guy. with the, the pizza guy um which i watched a, a documentary on a shutter called uh, about cursed films which we'll get into a little bit later the curse that's on this film or, or ha- that it had Shit, i meant to watch that <laughs> but uh well i've got some notes from it so it's all right but um uh there was they, they actually had a museum director on there and she said that uh, that particular entity uh would there's never been any kind of uh icon iconography of that creature that that's been established to be that large because the Babylonians believed that he was such a powerful demon that to give him to any kind of icons bigger than basically like a necklace, you know, piece or like something to go on your wrist was to, you know, basically give him so much power that he would come into your life. So I thought that wow. was kind of, Which we saw that <laughs> a rock the size of your fist <laughs> yeah. would allow that obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh well of course we go from there into the the main the part of the movie where uh you start seeing uh you know uh chris and she's you know got the traditional family life she's got you know uh regan as uh just a bright cheerful child and everything's going well there and chris has got a good acting career and just it's everything seems fine but then uh, whenever she catch uh, i think it's like shortly after that which going back on that one minute it, it's a little uh, and i'm going to throw these in i was going to throw in just the comparisons of the novel a bit later but i might as well work them in we're discussing the movie they introduced father Karras in this way earlier than they do in the novel and i thought that was kind of interesting i it i can't fault Blatty for doing this because he only had so much runtime, but it was just kind of odd that he would just throw Father Karras, if, I don't know if you noticed this, but he, Karras was in the crowd or at least in one version of the movie he is, uh, whenever Chris oh, he is, was, yeah. yeah, whenever Chris is filming the, the, her scene or whatever where she's going up and marching on the campus, Karras is there watching her and then he walks off and then later she sees him talking to somebody else, which is a good callback to something in the novel. He Basically with him being the psychologist for the, you know, the church, he would listen to the other you know priests that were having like their own crisis of faith which is you know kind of ironic considering he had his own but uh she kind of overheard a little bit of that before she walks back into her home and then it's right after that uh that she sees uh regan uh or, or she catches Re- well she starts hearing i think before she sees the, the ouija board i think she starts hearing the rats if i remember right oh um, yeah it was creepy in the film too it did not sound like rats no and it's in the novel and i I personally believe the novel does a better job of building this up of course it has way more time to build it up i mean you know going back to runtime and everything like that uh but it's just so creepy it's uh, going back to you know the possession stuff itself there is something that a lot of that i've heard in a lot of the stuff i've been listening to about that called oppression and it's like the stage right before the possession occurs and it's all the stuff that happens to regan basically at this point in the in the film i mean you start hearing noises uh there's foul smells you know which i don't think they elaborate so much in the movie but it's in the novel and uh the shaking of the bed i mean that's that's in the movie 
um, just all of the other phenomena basically that that leads up to the actual possession itself goes on for a while actually before any of that happens and that's the oppression phase of this whole you know situation and um it's not really elaborated in either the movie or the novel, but it's kind of uh, hinted that it, it might be brought on by the fact that A, Chris is a atheist and, and doesn't have any faith herself, and B, that Regan is like extremely, dis- or she she doesn't bring it out much, but she's really saddened by the fact that her father's not in her life. And I mean, they... they yeah, they, she holds it in. Yeah, and I mean, that, that's a good setup, you know, not having a good spiritual basis plus the little bit of depression or whatever over her dad not being in her life that, you know, kind of sets her up for all that. Um, not counting the the scene in the movie where you know Chris discovers that she's got a Ouija board that she's been playing with and uh, speaking to something called Captain Howdy, which in the novel she finds kind of funny and she just laughs it off because the father's name is Howard, I believe, so she thinks it's like a stand-in for the father. That's why she originally just blows it off. <laughs> uh, which makes sense because if you're that comfortable with the spirit you're allowing them in. Yeah, exactly. That's how they get in. Kind of like if you think about it totally off, not really off topic, but the possession of the Annabelle doll. The the parents thought it was their daughter and the doll asked for permission or the doll, the entity asked for permission to be in the doll and they said yes. There's... Yeah, there's there's a lot of lore that ties into that. Like if you give a uh, some kind of inanimate receptacle, if you treat it like a human being and give it like the care and attention, you're kind of inviting something to give it an animating force, basically. Yeah. Um, and the only thing I didn't like about that scene in the movie where she discovers the Ouija board is the fact in the novel it's hers. Like in the movie, they kind of paint it like, Oh, where'd you find this at? Was this in the, you know, house when we rented it, you know, like it just randomly pops up. That's kind of the vibe I got in the movie. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought. It's, it's not like that in the novel. She's like, Oh, you found that. We used to play with that all the time. You know, it's like, you know, we used to use that at parties. That's no big deal. Like, I mean, she, it's her Ouija board. Like she used it herself, like at some point. So it's like, that. that's another reason why she doesn't think it's such a big deal. Yeah. Um, but, um, we go from there and we have a few scenes with Father Karras kind of setting him up, you know, showing scenes with his mother and she's an Italian immigrant, doesn't speak a whole lot of English, uh, basically sits in her apartment all day listening to the radio and uh, kind of uh, lives just kind of a sad life. And the only thing that gives her pleasure is basically seeing her son, which gives Karras no end of guilt because of the fact that whenever he shows up, he, he knows that, you know, basically, you know, his he's... I mean, he's the light of his mother's life, and, you know, he's always gone. So, I mean, I and, and later in the movie when she passes away, I mean, that just kind of destroys him. I mean, he's, you know, he, he continuously blames himself for not being around at that point. Well, I need um, kind of a fill-in, if you don't mind, because <clears throat> this, the movie, I got confused, because in the movie, he sees her in the home. His uncle had put her in the home. I had the extended version. I don't know which version you watched. Um, um, I've I've seen both of them. Okay, so the last time he sees her is in the home, and she turns her head and she's crying. She didn't want to be there. It was obvious, you know. And then, in one of the scenes, not too long after that, they talk about how his mother passed away, and she had died a few days prior, and they had found her dead. But I'm like, how? Do, 
it made it sound like they found her dead at the home, but he, Karis, had saw her at a hospital. I'll be honest with you. I don't remember that part in the novel uh, well enough to uh, elaborate enough to be able to, I, I think, I think if I remember right, it's kind of how the uh, the movie sets it up. She was in the home. She had to go to the hospital over some kind of health condition. The movie does a pretty good job of showing all this. Uh, the uncle, you know, fights with Karis. Karis wants her to have a better, you know, he wants her in a better place. But, you know, and then and the uncle kind of th- throws the guilt trip on him on top of that. He's like, well, mister, I could have been a doctor, but I, instead I chose to be a poor priest. Uh, we don't have any money, so she's going to go where I can put her. And yeah. she gets thrown in basically the worst conditions that, that she could be. And, um, I, Which, that by just, the way, in the film, did you know that those people were real patients? I did not know that. I, they I were didn't. real patients. So the woman that grabbed Karis, that was a legit scene. That really happened, and that was not scripted. Wow. That that makes sense with something I'll get into the behind the scenes. But, yeah, I can see that because Friedkin, the director, uh, really uh, he really preferred – and valued authenticity whenever he could add that to scenes. Um, oh my God, so. at any cost. <laughs> yeah, um, he. there's a lot of things with that. We'll get to that in a minute. But um, um, So you got the scenes with Father Karras, and then his, his mother passes away. And, of course, he's got a crisis of faith anyways. I don't know if it elaborates in the movie, but he basically, it, there's a whole, the scene in the movie uh, where it shows him speaking to the, uh, it's right at the beginning where it shows, I think right after the scene with Chris and, and where she sees him and all that, he's on a subway uh, platform and he sees like the, the basically the drunk laying off to the side and he's, he asks, uh, Father, can you get, spare me some change or something like that? Uh, in the movie, I think he just kind of glances at him and, and just kind of gives him like a disgusted look, you know, especially when he mentions something about you're a Catholic, you know, like yeah, I am a, or I'm something like that. I'm like, that um, is low. <laughs> in, in, the, in the novel, it goes even farther. He gets right up in Karis's face and like it, you know, goes into detail about how much he stinks and all that. And Karis is just like here, you know, like it, it, it's his interior monologue and he's like, here we go again. It's like... Why does this, you know, I, I don't believe, you know, uh, why does, you know, God keep throwing these people at me that there's uh, probably because there is no God. Like he's, he's truly like a man without his faith at that point. And he throws like a something at the, like a dollar or something at the, in, in the novel at least, at the drunk man just to get him to leave him. But it's not out of any kind of like real charity on his behalf. He just, he just don't want to deal with him. And it's that's kind of where. obligation. Yeah. yeah. And it. And and that's kind of where he's operating from. That's his whole mental situation. Like, I mean, he truly is somebody who has lost... Com- he's seen too much. Like, all the years that he's done psychology work and all the he's mental illnesses. some shit. And he just finds it hard to believe that, the, uh, that if there was a God, that they would allow such evil to exist in the world, basically. Well, uh, which yeah, con- in the film, I will say that you... Karis has a despair about him. Um... And you can kind of see, I you don't get so much the feel that he's having a crisis of faith. I mean, you know that that's there, but he's just, there's just something about him in his face, the way he looks. The actor did a great job because in the scene that you're talking about, he doesn't throw a dollar at the guy, but he does give him a look of disgust, like, ugh, yeah, that, I'm done with this shit. Yeah, it's it's just a great look. It's like, why me? Why why do I have to put up with this? Why is this nonsense always following me around? I mean, and 
I get that. The despair in the movie, I, I kind of feel like it's more about his mother than anything. I mean, that's what I got yeah. more from the movie. I mean, because they repeatedly bring it's it heavily up. heavily implied. Yeah, especially later when, when the demon, you know, inside Regan is like trying to psychologically attack Karis. It's all about his mother. I mean, which it is in the novel too, but I mean, it's it's one of the main things that used to attack him, and it really does a number on him when it does. Um you uh, go on from there. You have the the scene where things kind of escalate, and that's with the, the Regan, you know, urinating at the, at the little party that Chris is throwing for everybody. Um, We've all been there, Regan. <laughs> uh, you have um, you have this. Uh, let's see where it goes from there. You um, basically have a bunch of scenes, uh, and this gets into the worst part of the movie, at least for me, which I find funny, uh, it, and it kind of ties into some behind-the-scenes information. But all the tests that Regan has to go through when the possession really starts, you know, ratcheting up, it's like, you know, just like she's going to psychologist after psychologist. She, you know, leaps on the one guy, drags him to the floor, bites him, you know, cussing, screaming, doing all that things. But the arteriogram... That scene where they reel her in, wheel her into that room, tap something, a big needle into her neck, unscrew it, Ugh. a bunch of blood shoots out all over the place. They, I hated that. <laughs> that scene disturbed me more than the scenes later where she was possessed. And I thought it was funny in the behind the scenes. I'm just going to jump the gun and throw this in here. Uh, William Blatty himself, the the novel writer, said that those were his most disturbing scenes in the movie. He said wow. that he said that anytime he watches the movie now, he will look away when that scene is on. And he said it was also the scene that most uh, or that you know there there was some controversy around the film when it came out. People throwing up, fainting you know, leaving the movie theater because it was just too graphic, too horrifying, or, you know, for their yeah. sensibilities. He said that was the scene that he always saw people walk out on, was that. He said it wasn't, you know, really necessarily the possession wow. stuff. It was that art. And he said he believed it was just because it was so real, and it was the legit. that They even went so far as to get, like, they going back to what you said about how they had the real patients, these were the real doctors and technicians that Friedkin had interviewed to, about the process, and he said, hey, you know, can you guys come in here and do this movie for us? And he actually hired them on the spot, brought them in there, and that's the exact thing that they used to do to people. Jesus Christ. Okay, because <laughs> it was cringeworthy. Definitely watching that. And I'm sorry, but Linda Blair, how she basically expressed her pain, you could feel it. Oh. I could feel the pain. I could feel the needle in my neck. I could feel whatever the, he was saying, there's going to be pressure, and I could feel the pressure. She did an amazing job. And, and but I am going to say, as cringeworthy as that was, okay, what does that make me? If I can handle watching that scene, <laughs> but I couldn't handle everything else, like, does that make me stronger, weak? I don't even know. I think it goes back into what we were talking about earlier and just uh, how you view it from a faith point of view. But that, Yeah, it's got to be. But, the, but that scene, I mean, I just find it funny that it was the scene that made me cringe the most during the whole movie and I thought was the hardest to take. And that was also the director himself, or not the director, but the, the novel writer, the screenwriter, thought was uh, one of the worst scenes for him. Um, but anyways, we go on from there and, uh, we, you know, have just the things escalate even more. Uh, Chris gets, uh, just at her wits end. Uh, she, she's got like, I don't know how many doctors she says she's hired 30 or more. She's got, she's got a whole roster on her team. Cause 
it's not elaborated in the in the the movie so much, but in the novel they actually give her like yearly income and it's like eight hundred thousand dollars, which is, <laughs> I mean, most of it are really high for back yeah, then. Really high. Um, so anyways, she's, uh, so she's got all these doctors on her payroll and like none of them are providing her any kind of relief for her daughter and, and Regan's just getting worse and worse. And, and this is a source of contention for me versus the novel, but in the, in, in the movie, uh, she's just at her wits end. She asks all of them, she's like, what are we going to do? And they come up and like shock therapy. And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, Sometimes, uh, there, you know, some cultures think that the only way to get rid of this is to, uh, perform an exorcism. We don't really believe that uh, such things work, but, uh, sometimes it provides the shock needed for the patient to resolve their psychoses on their own. So at that point is when, you know, Chris accepts, you know, the possibility that she might need a priest to help her instead of a medical professional. And, uh, that's where we get Father Karras connected back into the story, um, Shortly before that happened, or right before she decides to do that, I think, is when Dennings is killed. So that's where Kinderman gets brought in. He's investigating to see what caused it because he, he's in the novel, he's painted as pretty shrewd. I mean, he, he comes off as bumbling in the novel, which he does not in the movie. He's just a, you know, suave, you know, investigator in the movie, but in, in the, in the novel, uh, he, he's kind of a bumbling Columbo type, which is a whole other tangential yeah. thing. I, uh, there's there's some theories out there that he was actually the inspiration for Columbo and that uh, Blatty to this day is still pissed off that uh, his character was basically lifted, you know, uh, character by trait by character trait and, and made into uh, something before he was able to actually, because he had a plan to make Kinderman in his own spinoff series. And that got yeah. shit canned basically when Peter Falk walked up there in his classic trench coat and disheveled clothing and you know pulled the Columbo act but um so anyways we've got we got Kinderman on the scene he's investigating we get Karis involved Karis doesn't really want to label it as an exorcism he's trying to convince Chris it's psychological she's you know hysterical at that point which is the smart and legal (laughs) thing to do it is but that's not what she wants to hear after she's had numerous psychologists basically do jack all nothing for her daughter so um and uh eventually he hears enough and sees enough uh which by the way that scene that you mentioned where he hears the 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 speech you know being played backwards that's not in the theatrical release that's that's only in the extended version um oh okay okay um but which is i mean that's insane to me because that scene was Great, because it was a great way to dismiss. No, we're not going to let you do an exorcism. That's not speaking in tongues. <laughs> and 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 it's lifted straight from the novel, which is why I, th- I actually personally like that scene and wish they would have put it back in. But um, it is what it is. I mean, runtime and everything. Well, the else. studio tried to have some creative, you know, involvement, and there was some things that they didn't want in there. So I wonder if that was one of the scenes. I know back then they didn't have a, as much creative control as studios do now, but they might have put their foot down on a few scenes. Like I know uh, in the original theatrical release, they didn't have the faces, or at least not all of them. No. And in the extended <clears throat> release, they said they 
that's when he wanted the faces. Yeah, and that's a source of contention for me because I feel like they added a little too much of those in. I feel like the, the few that they flashed in the theatrical was subtle enough to where it kind of added yeah. the, the horror. When you see something too often, you kind of get numb to its effect, and he kind of just peppered the whole movie whenever he had the chance to remake that yeah, part Yeah, I noticed it. that too, and I only remember seeing it once or twice previously. I know I saw the extended uh, version because I remember Regan coming down the stairs the, and her backwards the, lobster crawl. The, the lobster crawl slash spider walk, whatever you want to call it, is the most infamous scene in that movie. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing to me that it's not in the theatrical because, I mean, we can get into the discussion in a little bit, but I... I grew up, you know, like I, I never actually saw the movie. I just saw things around it. I didn't actually see the movie myself until I was in my mid-20s, which would have been like early, mid-2000s, something like that. And I'd always heard about the movie, but I saw all these toys like Nika came out with with the spider walk. You know, it was like, and I was like, oh, my oh, yeah. God, you know, what is this movie? And I and, and it's crazy to me that that's not even in the actual movie itself. I mean, like the theatrical version, that's only in that extended version that they have that scene. Um, yeah, but I there some somebody pointed out on a on a blog that I uh, that I looked at, um, and let me see if I can find the name here for it. Uh, it was a Collins Crypt blog. Um, he broke down a lot of the different changes in the scenes from the theatrical to the extended, and he brought up a good point about that spider walk scene. It doesn't really make th- uh, thematic sense in the movie when you think about it, because at the point in the movie when that happens, Regan is bedfast. She can't move under power of her own. Like the only thing contr- she can move, uh, I mean, because she's so weak, the only thing that allows her to move is the demon itself. I mean, I guess you could argue that it was the one that did it, but it really, what does it add to the movie? I mean, she runs down, she does the weird, I mean, that weird look, and then Chris screams, and then nothing comes out of it. There is no reaction to Lips it whatsoever. out of her mouth. I don't know. That shit was creepy. It, it, it adds to the fright factor a little bit, but it doesn't really add to the movie at all. Like, it doesn't really fit. That's true, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't fit in know. with the story. I mean, it, uh, I, I, I can see why they cut that one versus some of the other scenes that they, you know, they didn't. So you kind of got to think of the times though, because back then, because they hired a gymnast basically to do that scene. I think that was the only scene she did. I no, I think she did the cross or the crucifix in the uh, lower region scene as well. <clears throat> but um, that actress. Um, Basically doing that, that's not something you really saw back then. Like, you see that a lot now, and most of it's CGI, you know? Well, there's, there's but a... But this was her actually walking down, and she had a um, a harness on her, but this was her walking down the stairs backwards. That, that it looks creepy. Like, if you saw that shit <laughs> in your house, you would shit your pants. Well... I definitely wouldn't just scream and then like act like nothing had happened like Chris does. I mean, I would probably be running out of the house, down the street. I don't care. I that's mean, my daughter. I'm gonna <laughs> kick her. I mean, I, I just this. I agree with you. I mean, it's one of those things where, and and this is how the whole movie's set up. There, there's so much in this movie that people don't appreciate because we've gotten used to so much more with CGI and all these other special effects that re- replicate or do better than what that movie had. But there is a lot in that movie that they did that to add to the special effects that we don't, we don't even acknowledge anymore. Like, I mean, just oh, yeah. throwing throwing something out from behind the scenes, you know, bringing some of that up now. Um, 
little things like that whole scene where, where Regan attacks the one of the psychologists by jumping on him and then the camera follows him as he falls to the floor with his eyes like filled with fright like that whole scene like had to be like that camera mechanism had to be invented by freaking on the spot like nobody had done that previously like he, he they came up with this like how are we going to follow this guy all the way down to the floor and they came up with a rig just to do that so that they could you know get that you know point of view shot as he was falling down um, oh, there was a lot of things he did like that. Uh, um, another one that, that nobody gives credit to um, that I thought was interesting was there's a scene in the movie where, like, they hear some kind of major commotion from Regan's room. And, like, uh, you got uh, Sharon, uh, with the tutor, and, like, uh, I think Father Karras and maybe somebody else run up, like, you know, and, and they're following the cameras, like, in front of them, uh, going backwards up the stairs and following, you know, and kind of tracking them as they come up the steps. What people don't realize is they had to build a whole rig where somebody was suspended with a with a camera um, and basically they they pulled that camera guy up the the steps he was basically in some kind of chair that they that they maneuvered while he held the camera you know on the people and and come up and it's like this smooth you know transition shot all the way up the stairs but like anymore I mean like that's just old hat nowadays like people, you see that scene and you're like oh you know who cares you know what that there's nothing you take special it for granted, basically but I mean that there's a lot of creativity in coming up with that scene and it's all throughout the movie like that I mean there's just like the scene where she levitates later um um the one of the special effects guys had worked on uh like doing some kind of commercial products where he like did uh these things for it was some kind of thing for airlines or something like that. anyways he had to he had to show like things suspended or or, or floating basically uh, in his other projects, but like hide the wires that they use. So, that, and, and he'd come up with this technique where he basically dotted the wires. Like he, he had these dots, like, you know, put on meticulously on the wires they were using to hold Regan up. And he, they did it in such a way that you can't even see them in the movie. Like she's totally like suspended. Oh and, and, but I mean, it's, and, and there's nothing CG about it because they didn't have that. It's, she's just held up yeah. by wires, but you cannot see them because of the technique he used. It's all throughout the movie like they that. They did a good job. Yeah. And it's a lot was put into those. <clears throat> and and the makeup effects i mean just just all the things that they did and it's it's hard to appreciate now when you go back and see it i mean it's but i mean it's it's crazy that they that all the stuff that and and another thing they did the scene all the scenes at the end where you could see their breath they had to to achieve that. They couldn't do CGI; wasn't available, uh, which would have been an easy fix nowadays. Just like have them, you know, talking normally, and then just put some gust of air on the film afterward, and you'd be good to go. No, they had to drag in an industrial-sized air conditioner, set that thing to twenty below zero, get the room that cold. Basically, have the people film the scenes in that such in that cold temperature, and they could only do it for a few minutes at a time because the body heat of the actors involved in that scene, which have been Karis, Marin, and uh, uh, Linda Blair, you know, Regan, they, th their body heat itself was enough to heat the room up enough to where the effect went away. Yeah. So they could only, they, they had to film that in short spurts, like, oh, and let the room cool back down in between scenes. Crazy. They said it was pure torture. <laughs> like, I mean, obviously it looks so good, you know, on the film, but oh my God, could you imagine that? I, I was wondering, cause I know, I noticed in some of the scenes, cause I knew that watching the movie the second time, I've only seen this movie twice. Okay. I did not want to watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> seen it once and I vowed to never watch it again and here I am watching it for a damn podcast you're welcome thanks thanks <laughs> my sanity is at stake but no I was watching and I had known this about the scene and so I was looking to see 
how did they keep this poor girl? And I know they can't, I, I ruled out that they couldn't have heating pads because that would cause the temperature of the room to go up more. But I was thinking, oh my God, she had to have on some major thermals or, you know, um, <clears throat> Linda some Bla kind of material that would keep her body heat, but also not put it out so that way, you know, it wouldn't heat up the room quicker. Linda Blair basically said that while they had like the, 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 the two actors for the priest had like on these tight fitting body suits that, you know, did a pretty good job of holding their temperature in, she had thermal yeah. underwear. That is all she had. She said she was oh literally freezing to death during those scenes. I mean, it was... Uh, another testament to uh, how much she had to put up with, in addition to some other things, uh, which I guess I... Yeah. Well, anyways, getting back to the movie itself before we get, you know, and kind of going from there, and we'll kind of get into some of this other stuff. Here. Yeah. Um, basically, the movie escalates. Uh, Karis gets involved, agrees to do, uh, or finally gets enough uh, uh, evidence that he's convinced that they need to conduct uh, actual exorcism. They call, they, they look around for whoever they can get. Father Marin's the only one qualified to do it. They're really worried about his ability to do it because the last one he did went on for so long and weakened him so bad that they're afraid he'll kill him. Foreshadowing. Um, and then, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Father Marin shows up and we have that iconic scene where he's standing below the house and the, the you know, the fog rolling in and he comes in and, they uh the everything escalates with Regan. We have all the classic scenes. I mean, scenes. they don't fuck around. They get started. <laughs> they, he, he gets in like, well, let's fucking get to yeah, it. Yeah, he can't say it in those exact words, but you know that's yeah. What he's just like thinking. you know they ask him. It's like, well, do you need anything? He's like, nope. Let's just go. And that that's how he does in the novel too. He's basically he asks for the cassock uh to cover it, you know, to cover up with. Has, sends Karis for that when Karis and he drinks a cup of coffee with Chris when. Karis gets back with those it's it's business that's he goes yeah, right you know into what? it I wanted to know like well, how are you there knowing good goddamn well you have to do an exorcism and you don't have at least holy water because in one of the scenes he's he throws water on her but it was just regular water <laughs> well I think one of those scenes was Karis uh testing to see if the the if it was a true ex you know a true possession and he throws tap water on there and um and when the the creature reacts, that's kind of his sign that no, this isn't a true possession because you know if it was tap water, it shouldn't have had any effect. But it, but the creature acted like it, you know, or Regan yeah. acted like it did, and that that was the only it scene. It burns. That, it burns. Yeah, and they <clears throat> they're a tangent. There's a new show on called Hellstrom on Hulu, and they play up a, the very first part of the the show, like very first few scenes. They play up that that perfectly. He walks in the house. He asks to go into the bathroom. He comes out. You think he's just going in there to, you know, you know, take care of business before he goes and deals with it. But no, he he brilliantly goes in there, gets some tap water, throws it on the little the little boy who's supposed to be possessed, and and then and you know then throws it back in the kid's face. He's like, "Come on, you're not possessed. That was tap water." And it turns out that it, the kid wasn't really, and it was all the waste of his time. But I mean, I thought that was a good callback to The Exorcist. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> But um, and then you know exorcisms go on. Getting back to the movie, they um, uh, Father Marin dies in the process, which the movie doesn't elaborate well enough, I don't think. But in the book, it's clearly stated that I mean everything involved in in the novel. When Father Karras comes back from taking a rest, because uh, this thing's went, they don't elaborate this in the movie that well either. But that that exorcism went on for a week almost. And oh yeah, no. This seemed like this happened in like one one maybe night, two yeah. hours, yeah. yeah. Um, and he sends, he sees that Father uh, uh, Karis is just beat, and he is too, but he's not letting on that it's happening. 
And yeah. so he sends Father Karras off to rest. Karras really can't rest, but he he does his best, gets heckled by Kinderman over something in the process, still doesn't get rest, so he comes back anyways. And when he comes back, he hears the, you know, the demon through Regan's body, you know, screaming out, you know, you gave up, you know, you, 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 uh, you cheated me, Marin, you know, and when he gets up there, he sees the, the bottle of nitroglycerin pills that, you know, that Marin had been using to control his, uh, chest pains or whatever, uh, dumped out beside the bed and his lips blue and all that, which they, they show that scene in the movie where his lips are blue and all that, but he's, he died of a heart attack. Some people who watch the movie, it, it's kind of really not played out well enough to really be able to discern it. They think the demon no, killed I him. I thought it might be, yeah, I thought it might be heart related, but like, it could be both because he was taking the pills. You know, he, he's been shaking since the beginning of the film. You could see his hands shaking. You could see he needs to take his pills. And I was like, when I saw it in my head, I was like, first of all, I forgot he died from the first. I'm telling you, I was traumatized from the first time I seen this movie. I forgot some shit. Um, <laughs> but when I saw him dead, I was like, motherfucker, he died. Shit. Okay, what now? Uh, wait a second. How did he die? He took his medication. Did he die from a heart attack because the demon scared the shit out of him? No, he. It's in the book. It's implied that he just had a weak heart, and the and and it's not really the demon that did it. It was the the effort he, he just couldn't fight no more. It, it was the effort he was putting into the actual exorcism. Like I mean, the just the amount of sheer will he was putting into trying to. Because yeah, I you mean, put your heart and soul into yeah. driving the entity out. You know, <clears throat> which uh, another little interesting tidbit: Max von Sydow was actually a very young man in that movie. And I kudos to the the people who made his aging makeup is amazing. He really looks like an older gentleman in that movie oh and my when it, god i did not know that and when you see him he's like 30 or 40 or something like he's very very young like he looks nothing like he does in the movie so another kudos to the wow. you know uh another little thing that you don't really give credit to the movie special for effects, which that is one of the movies like special effects wasn't as big of a thing they think that they are the you know creators of real special effects and i mean you got to give them some credit <laughs> where credit's due you know exactly um and so we get the scene where Father Marin's passed away, and then we have the, the iconic scene where Karis and, and pure rage <laughs> just basically tries to beat the demon out. Just slaps the shit out of Regan, which doesn't happen. She deserves it. Well, it, it doesn't happen <laughs> in the novel. I, I think that's one of my biggest uh, pet peeves with the movie, in a sense. I mean, it plays well. Don't get me wrong, it plays the drama up a little, you know, a little bit more. But in the novel, he doesn't do that. He basically he, he stands at the end of the bed and he just screams at the demon you know he's like you know come in you know come take me over i'm more of a you know a threat you know i can be more of a threat and more of a use to you than she can and he basically basically inviting the demon in yes and then you you know in the movie he kind of does something similar after he beats the shit out of her and uh then whenever the demon comes in you kind of see the possessed face on him for just a split second and which was so cool it was a very good scene and he whenever he gets uh some of his control back right before he wants to throttle the last of regan's life away from her because you can see it in his eyes and his hand motion that he was going to choke her to death but he gets just enough yeah, control it was a good point of view angle yeah it's it's great and you see just enough and and, and you see that he gets just enough control back that he leaps from the window and has that horrible tumble down those steps you know to the the bottom and where he's just bleeding out 
and um, in the version you saw, which is the extended version, that's all those other scenes after that are the the extended version. All those scenes where Father, uh, uh, you know, um, Dyer comes in and he's he's talking to Kinderman after the fact and uh, talking to Chris, and you know, yeah. the last rites I think are in the regular movie. Uh, the, oh, okay. The only thing that I that I prefer. And the, that I wish they could have done the movie is that Father Karras had a little bit more sense about him in the novel. He actually smiled and he actually spoke slightly uh, to uh, Father Dyer, and it, there was peace in him. I mean, the the movie doesn't portray that, and some people, I guess, have thrown out the theory that since he committed suicide, that you know that damned him in the process. In the novel, it's completely the opposite. He 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 leapt with the demon inside of him as a as a source of like protection for Regan, and he does it out of complete faith because in the moment he does that, his his faith in God is restored, and he dies with that faith on, and, and that's why he dies with a smile. He is restored back to his faith that he had lost years before he ever saw you know anything to do yeah. with Regan and, and her family. Pretty much knowing he had done a legit good thing. <clears throat> exactly. And um, I will say that in the film, the only thing I was upset because I knew about the smile. You had told me about that, and, I was, and you couldn't recall if it was in the film or not. And it's not um, because his head's turned away from the camera, which I really did not is. like. Yeah, I, I didn't yeah, like that. And I was, yeah, and I was kind of like, okay, well, I didn't see the smile. But what you do get is another, this is how I felt seeing it. Um, and people might feel differently. People may not have even noticed it. But at one point you have, um, he's getting his, you know, last rites being said to him. And he's holding, what's the priest's name that's there with him? Father, Father. Dyer. Yeah, Dyer. Dyer. He is, you could see he's grabbing Father Dyer's hand and he's just kind of very light pressure. You could tell he's acknowledging him. It's almost compassionate, like, thank you. You know, they they did do a good job with that. I will give them credit that that did kind of partially stitch up some of the difference between the novel and the, yeah. and the movie. It's just a small gesture that worked, in my opinion. It, it did. And it, it gave you just enough confirmation that he had his wits about him enough to be able to actually get some, you know, benefit from reading The Last Rites. Um, um, uh, basically. That that's it as far as the the movie is concerned. I mean the basic breakdown of it. Uh, I, uh, some of the things I want to discuss about it is I mean we've kind of went over. Um, I people. I mean it's hard to give it credit now for the things that it, it did uh, that were innovative back in the day. Um, it's also uh, so hard to recognize now how truly. Um, I don't know, it, uh, just uh, groundbreaking and, and, and shocking it would have been to the... I mean, that, that masturbation scene with the cross, I mean, that that's disturbing now. I can't even imagine 70s, early 70s audiences seeing something like that. They, they weren't used to that sort of thing. I mean, we're years... No, not at all. We're years away from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at that point. I mean, there's nothing on camera that is anywhere close to this movie as far as, like, you know, it's, uh, I mean, some of the stuff that it got away with. Um and and it's and it's hard to put that in perspective whenever you're looking at it. I mean, with things like the Conjuring and all that now. I mean, we our modern version of the Exorcist. We you know we're used to all these things. I mean, you know, it's like we see that. I mean, we get the quick little shock, you know, the adrenaline rush. But I mean, it's it's not like you know, it's not disturbing on a 
a psychological and spiritual level like it would have been to the people seeing it for the first time. I mean, even going back, I mean, you, you got to give it this. I mean, people now like the going, I mean, this tangent, but like the movies like, you know, the, the Wolfman, you know, Frankenstein, you know, Dracula, the old Universal Monsters that stuff seems kind of campy nowadays. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, all this stodgy old, you know, movie stuff. But if you can put yourself in the place of the audiences at the time that had never seen anything remotely like that, I mean, that the films had just evolved to the point where they could even have special effects like, you know, Frankenstein and the Wolfman, and they see this stuff on screen and just all this craziness is going on. I mean, it would it would have had to have been like, you know, just disturbing beyond belief to see that. And that would have been the same situation with The Exorcist in the 70s. I mean, it was a whole new branch of, of, of horror films, which is a content uh, is a source of contention for the the uh, that word horror uh, that I'll get into in a little bit. But anyways, it, it it was a whole new thing that they'd never seen before, and it's hard to put into its proper perspective whenever you look at it this many years on. Yeah, it's hard to kind of retrospectively look at that and be like, wow, that was. You know, I can't imagine that because we have everything we have now. Um, I will say on that topic, the what the audience went through, and granted some of it could have been, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like people just overdoing it, you know, trying to, um, ugh, I, I, I can't put the word right now, what I'm trying to, people, you know, kind of just making shit up, you know, what's going on. But there was legit people, obviously, you heard about the people throwing up, you know. Um, people fainting. People <clears throat> fainting, um, being hospitalized. I mean, maybe, like, stomach pains, so upset. Um, one, for sure, miscarriage was reported. One woman had a miscarriage immediately from watching the film, now, from being so upset. Now, admittedly, Freakin was a genius when it came to uh, marketing, and he did play into all that. They actually, in some locations, they actually had ambulances sitting outside the movie theater to kind of play oh, that up. Oh, time. Bar so, bags. So, I mean, there was a little bit of showmanship there, but th- that stuff was really going on. And, I mean, um, it, it's, I, you know... I, I consider and say, you know, I, to me, it was uh, seeing it when I did, it, it, it didn't have quite the effect on me, but going back and trying to look at it through the lens of somebody from that, you know, that put myself in the position of somebody from that time, the the movie's amazing and, and you know, what it accomplishes, especially uh, with what little it has. And, and something that I noticed during the movie that I thought was kind of, it, the movie kind of hit me as whole hum when it came to how it was filmed. I, I'm used to like somebody who was raised in his teenage year. I mean, in my teenage years, like I investigated a lot of horror films and like the stuff that I really got into was like Sam Raimi stuff, like the evil dead, all these ca- crazy camera angles. Like, I mean, Raimi was all about oh, like, yeah. you know, just finding the weirdest angles he'd come up with. And it just made for a, you know, just a bombastic, like, you know, out there movie. Freakin never did any of that with this movie. It was most ho hum. Like the shots were like just straight on. Like there was, it was you know almost like the, an old school type of filming. And I thought it was kind of plain Jane until I realized I was watching them behind the scenes. Freakin was hired specifically because he was a noted documentarian, and they wanted him for. And Blatty chose him to direct that movie for that particular reason because him and and Freakin both wanted the movie to look like a document, uh, documentary, or a documentary. He wanted documentary, him, yeah. yeah. He wanted him to look. He wanted it to look whole hum so that it added to the realistic, you know, feeling of the movie. Um, it was. It was. It went so far as to be that. 
Friedkin wouldn't even allow a traditional film crew to be on set. Like if if you, they, the studio tried to send in a film crew with like the Mike Booms and all the other traditional stuff they normally film with, and and the special effects guy, as soon as he saw him walk on the set, he he kicked him out because he knew that as soon as Friedkin saw him, he was going to throw a fit and, and cuss everybody. So they just took the special effects people and everybody that they had already on the in the crew and they filmed it because they wanted it as organic and as real feeling as possible because they thought that would add to the movie's effect. And, and I can see that now watching the movie. I can see that, you know, where he wanted to do that, you know. Um, and, and it does have that feeling. It's, it's got less of the, the crazy, you know, like camera angles and some of the stuff we're used to now where quick cuts and all that, it's, it's right on the people because he wanted it almost like you were, you know, a camera crew that was joining along with a priest as they were, you know, going on this, you know, exorcism basically. Um, exactly. And he had a lot of real feel to that. I mean, he had, as you said earlier, real doctors. He did have, how many, was it just one real priest? Did you research that? Um, he had two priests on staff and, um, he, so that they would, uh, so they'd make sure that the exorcisms were actually authentic when they were performed. They actually had them as there to guide them on how the process should go. So that whenever Max von Sydow is doing his scenes, they're legit as to how they would have done them. Yeah. Um, so I heard about that. Did you know that the actress, um, Mercedes, oh goodness, I don't know um, her full name, Mercedes, uh, the actress that did the voice of Regan, the possessed voice, um, she basically went, what is that acting called when you uh, you like put yourself into, you immerse yourself into the, the actor that you're going to be? Oh yeah, that's method acting. <clears throat> method acting, total, total method actress. Oh lord, she, I don't want to be around somebody that's method acting as that thing. <laughs> Oh, my God. She basically said herself that if you want the voice of a demon, you have to let oh. me bring out my demon. Oh, is that the lady who, like, smoked, like, three or four packs of cigarettes or something and then, like, mm -hmm. drunk some, like, a, a, like a bunch of whiskey just so she could have... Yeah, I, I think I heard that whenever I was researching. Had, but see, <laughs> what people don't really know about that, they hear that, but they don't know was that she was a recovered alcoholic. Oh, my Lord, that's and awful. she had recovered from lung cancer previously. Great. Great. So she basically brought that all back just to have that voice, basically. She also required on set that she have two priests with her at all times. Not like, you know, obviously with her, like, in the film. But, like, as soon as they would record for, like, 12 hours at a time, she would go collapse on a couch, and they would go and pray over her and tend to her and take care of her. Her own Catholic priest. That's how serious you know, the film was taken in general and in so many different ways. That's just by the actress. I mean, you got the direct director and, you know, everyone else involved that had all their other, you know, methods that they were using to make sure things were real. I mean, when you have Regan's neck turning, they actually used a wallet. They were twisting a wallet to get the noise. Everything was real, but trying to get that organic, you know, filming involved with it it did cost a lot of money uh one of the things they considered a curse on this film was that it went so far over budget they oh started, wow yeah with a budget of five million it went up to 12 million which is basically equivalent to about 70 million not a ton in terms of you know what films basically it cost to produce them today 
But if you think about back then and what was involved, that's a lot of fucking money. It's it's a ton of money, but thankfully the movie did go on to gross sixty three million, which I think I remember reading from Box Office Mojo uh, equates to like two hundred thirty nine million dollars today. So it, oh, it's <laughs> it made its money back. It's the second highest grossing movie uh, in the horror genre, which again is a source of contention. Um, they did real good. They they there's only an evil clown that that resides in the sewer is the only thing that's beat it as far as like how. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? I, have, I don't know that I, film. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know anything about a uh, clown in Maine that was uh, also uh, written by Stephen King. But um, there was a, getting back to that scene you were talking about where the head twisting around. Something else from behind the scenes on that. That was actually completely built. That was a, that. It's amazing how close they made that dummy look like the actual Linda Blair in makeup. They and uh, oh, yeah. and and she pointed out that that thing used to sit beside of her, her and her make in her makeup room while she was having her makeup applied. So she said she was constantly freaked out by the th- fact that her own demonic face was looking at her the entire time she was having her makeup applied. So just imagine oh, that. That must have been exciting. <laughs> yeah. I can I, I, considering her age and everything. Uh, just nightmares, just nightmare fuels, all I can imagine. Um, I was listening to a documentary about her and how they selected her because she was just such a normal kid, but she really did speak so nonchalantly about what she was going to be doing. And people asked her after the film, like, how could you do this? Did you know about the masturbation scene? Did you know um, about the cursing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she would basically just say, it's just a job. At the end of the day, it's work. And then I go home and I act like my, and I become my normal self. She treated it. She kept it so separate from her actual life. And this was at 12 years old. Yeah, she was extremely young. This is how young. her mentality was. And, and to have that type of mentality at that age is is wonderful because Look at how good the movie came out. It would be nothing without this. I mean, they talked to him about having a woman that looked like she could pass for a 12-year-old be Regan. And he was like, no, I want a 12-year-old girl. And they're like, are you fucking serious? You're going to have a 12-year-old girl do a masturbation scene with a crucifix? Although they didn't actually have her do that. But ultimately, that's what you're seeing when you see this film. You don't know that it's, you know, a a, a stand-in doing that you know you think it's this 12 year old girl you know well they, they did a good job about that because getting back to that scene um uh, she was very adamant in the behind the scenes information talking about how freaking was extremely kind to her and he made sure that for what he could he shielded her from the shielded her from the worst of it like that masturbation oh, yes. scene he basically had her lay down on the bed he had some kind of like a pillow like device or whatever you know between her legs and he said basically stab down toward this and he wouldn't give her any context why she was doing it he just said and she and she said she's like I was a kid I didn't know what I was doing and and she said but he he told me to do that and it, like you said it was a job so I did what he told me and and they would cut to the scene of the other actress you know performing the other part of it that you know completed the the image and I mean they kept it separated but when you see it it's still hard to you know it's yeah, like distinguish the two <clears throat> but giving her credit for something or for some other things in the movie that we that I can't possibly imagine if I was 12 years old that I would be able to do the scene where she's got all that vomit that she's shooting out First of oh, all, the pea soup it's, and oatmeal. It's pea soup and oatmeal. It was a device that they that was high pressure that was activated whenever she would like. Uh, I think uh, it, like they 
I, I don't know if they act, I think they might have activated it, but she had to keep her mouth open the entire time that she had that device in because if she was to ever close her mouth, it would trigger the device and it would shoot all that down her own throat <laughs> at a high speed. So the entire time she's filming that, she's got to keep her mouth completely open. I can't even imagine, I mean, just how dry and awful that would be, especially with whatever that probably felt like. But then on top of that and all the makeup she had to go through, those contacts she had to have in that made her have the, like the yellowish eyes, she mm-hmm. she couldn't handle contacts. She had to have numbing drops put in her eyes every day before those were put in because she couldn't wear them without them. Like she, they they just, you know, I don't know if it was a phobia. Well, back then, they were made out of glass. No, they were awful. She said actually the, yeah. she said actually the ones that they used that made her eyes completely white were uh, more comfortable to wear, even though she couldn't see anything out of them because they were way newer and they were way thinner lenses. But um, Oh, interesting. I was wondering <clears throat> about that. Yeah, so, I mean, you got to give credit to her. I mean, I don't know how anybody that age can... I mean, A, she's great as uh, acting in the movie. I mean, going back to that scene with Arteriogram, I mean, she sells that pain. Like, I mean, you cringe whenever you see, I mean, just her reaction. And then to be able to act like that and be that composed with all this other stuff, like that vomit device in your mouth and, 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 and something we'll get to in a minute with a curse, that scene where she's being flung rapidly up and down the bed, she actually broke her lower vertebrae when she filmed that oh, and scene. she didn't know it. She was in pain, but she didn't know it was broken. Yeah. She did not know it was going to co- cause her basically a lifetime of pain. Yeah. I mean, so... Um, let's see. As far as the other things... Um, I think we've discussed most of the uh, behind-the-scenes information. The only other thing I wanted to bring up is that Blatt, the, I keep mentioning this, for it to be called a horror film really pisses off both Blatty and Friedkin and also Linda Blair. They all have their uh, they all have their contention with it. They don't think that it's a horror film. Blatty himself says it's a supernatural detective story. Um, he says that it's all about trying to discover... A you horrific know. supernatural detective story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he doesn't see it as a horror movie at all. It's like you're, they're trying to determine, you know, what's causing this. You know, there's there's all the buildup, you know, trying to, you know, the doctor's trying to figure it out. Kinderman trying to do his own detective work. And he's actually, he blames it for the fact that he actually, he actually apparently had a comedy writing career before this movie uh, became so oh, popular. Yeah. And as soon as it came out, he was the horror guy. That He, he couldn't write comedy anymore after that. Um Blair kind of one of the curses. <laughs> well, but but it made him rich, so I guess he can cry into his money. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Blair uh, calls it a theological thriller. Uh, she doesn't see it as a horror movie. She sees it as more, you know, just she more of a thriller, you know, and all that. And Friedkin himself is probably closest to what it really is. He says it's more about a, uh, it's a story more about the mystery of faith. He says it's more about, you know, uh the power of faith, uh you know, what it's a you know, effects lack thereof if you don't have it. He sees it as more of a movie about that and kind of, you know, delving into that versus just, you know, the demonic stuff. So I did hear that. I mean, Blatty himself is a devout Catholic. So so they, the fact that it's considered one of the top horror films of all time, well, the three principal people behind the movie don't really like that, but it is what it is. Um, mm, yeah. But the movie did apparently have a curse, so we can kind of go into that now. Um, 
a few days in the filming, I don't know if you heard this, but a fire broke out and on set and burnt at night while everybody was gone and burned every piece of, of set, uh, the, you know, that they'd built except for one, uh, one item or one set piece or, or set room. And you, you know what that room was? Reagan's room. Reagan's room. It was the only one that was spared. That's that's kind of freaky. That's kind of scary. Now, I was wondering if it was, I, I just literally, I swear, I just thought about this right now, but I was wondering if it was because they kept that room so fucking frigid. Well, but that would have only been two days in, and I think they filmed that toward the end of the movie, so I don't know if that would have had any bearings on it whatsoever. I mean, I... It's just kind of one of those things. We'll never know what really happened there, but um, supposedly, uh, now... They say they say in the the cursed film documentary that Jesuit priests were brought in to bless the set. Now they might have been, you know, they might have done that uh, on the side. Oh yeah, I did hear about that. <clears throat> but I also think they might have been there just because Blatty wanted the authenticity. So I don't really know how much. That's you know, true. I don't. I, you know, I did hear that too. So I don't because they did say that after the after the blessings. Like all the bad, because the blessings didn't happen until after quite a few bad things happened. And then they said after the blessing, pretty much everything stopped. Yeah, like one of the other things that happened, and this is crazy, uh, several people that were involved with the production or related to cast members died within days of uh, filming. Uh, oh, yeah. Linda Blair's grandmother died like the first day that she was on set. Uh, two actors in the film died, I think, shortly after they were in the movie. Uh, Max von Sydow's brother died the first day of filming, and then uh, a special effects expert who was in charge of keeping the set cold, you know, going back to that, he also died shortly after the, the movie, so um, a lot of deaths involved. Um, I know, the actor Jason Miller, his son was hit um, by a motorcycle, he survived, but it really took a toll on, you know, the set and basically the acting for a minute. I, I don't know how they, they, I mean, they probably ran over budget with the fact that all these people had to be off for mourning. I mean, I can't even imagine all, all these deaths happening left and right. And they, I mean, you know, it, it might not have affected so much with Max von Sydow since he didn't have as many films. But I mean, with Linda Blair, I mean, her, right, it was actually her grandfather. I don't know. I might have said grandmother. But like, I mean, if your grandparent dies, you're going to be off the set for a while. So, I mean, and she was, she had been, I mean, she was in a ton of the movies. So, I mean, they had to shut down production or had to film around it. I mean, there's no way. And I mean, it's just crazy that that sort of thing went on. Um, getting back to what we mentioned, what I mentioned earlier about uh, Linda Blair, that scene where she's you know screaming as she's flinging up and down on the bed. Uh, there was a lacing that they had attached to like that device that kept pushing her up and down, and it somehow came loose. And those last few uh, seconds of that scene were literally her getting slammed in the back with this with no, I mean, she wasn't moving with it. It was moving into her and that's what broke her uh, lower spine actually. So um, they said that the screams of pain in the movie of her screaming, no, make it stop. That was actually her screaming. Really, really her. She was legit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Same thing happened to the actress that played her mom. Um, Her getting thrown back, I believe. I believe it was her. I don't necessarily remember this in the film, but she also got hurt. Yeah, that that was kind of uh, that was kind of Freakin's fault. Um, it was uh, Ellen Burstyn, Chris McNeil. She they filmed the scene first. It was a basic, simple scene. It goes back to some of the brilliance they had when they came to special effects. If they could do it simple and make it look you know realistic, then that's what they did. They literally had a guy with a with a rope just basically pulling on her to get her to to fly backwards. 
she they pulled on it first and filmed the scene and Friedkin looked at it and he said, nah, that's not powerful enough. I want this thing to really look, you know, I really look like it's slamming her, you know, against the wall. So he told the guy, he's like, take two. He said, just really give it a yank. He pulled on it really hard. And you can see in the movie, she slams her head against the wall. Like it literally, he oh, yeah. he hits. And, and when she cries out, she's really crying out because she, I mean, she really hits her head in the movie. But that. I heard that she was pissed because she saw the camera zooming in on her and she knew what the fuck was up. Oh, yeah. But that, but the funny thing was is that wasn't the only thing that Friedkin did. I mean, the the guy. I mean, uh, Linda Blair. Uh she, I don't, she's probably more forgiving than she should be. She uh, ratcheted all up as, as part of his mad genius. But the guy used to go around set firing off actual guns behind people right before oh, their yeah. scenes had, to, to have them. Yeah, so that they would have like you know the most startled reaction they could whenever they were supposed to jump at a, at any kind of scene. Uh, Linda Blair said that one of the scenes where she was supposed to be laying there as the demon, you know, kind of all possessed, you know, like self-possessed in the sense that like it, you know, it just, it was, you know, king of its world and all that, that uh, she wasn't supposed to move at all and just kind of just sit there calmly. Well, she said he was firing this gun off, you know, to try to get the other actors to like get spooked. And she said she had to train herself not to jump whenever she would hear the gun because <laughs> it would look funny if the, the demon itself was like, you know, jumping at, you know, at, at some, some of the stuff that's going on. So, well, and they to be fair too, they did give her. He gave her a lot more warning than he gave the other. People oh, because he did. He did he wanted her to look, you know, calm while everybody else was on fucking edge? He did a lot of fucking crazy shit like that. Yeah, constantly. He even toyed with people's emotions to like get them to really cry. One actor got slapped for a scene right before he did his scene. I forget which one it was. Oh my god! And he slapped the shit out of him and made him immediately film to just to get the emotion. Um, it was so bad that Eileen Dietz, who was the one who played the face of Zuzu, you know, the kind of the stand in for Regan when she the was, spoke, you know, yeah. Um, she, she was on camera on this cursed film documentary saying that she said, normally you have the situation where you ask who can I screw to get on the, you know, the, this, you know, cast of this film. She said she was actually on the opposite side of that. She was like, "Who do I screw to get off this film? Because it's so yeah, because it's so <laughs> awful what he's putting us through." Um, One of the actors, I again, I forget. I I can't believe there were so many details. I I failed to take down, but one of the actors actually had to leave temporarily because basically he was having major anxiety attacks and needing medication and needed basically needed like. I want to say he only took two weeks, but basically was like, look, either you need to relax with this bullshit or I need to leave. And and I do know that he basically ended up backing off a little bit on scaring the fuck out of everybody on set. <laughs> that, I, I would imagine. I mean, it, it, it just the, the film material, the subject material itself, how they were filming it, Freakin's craziness. I don't know how any of them came out of it without some kind of anxiety issues, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, this is a little tidbit that I thought was interesting that was on the Curse Film documentary on Shudder. Uh, there was actually a real-life murderer that's in the film. Um, oh, yeah. The arteriogram scene, again, that awful scene that's the hardest in the movie to watch, they, they hired the real staff. Well, it turns out that the, the chief neuroradiologist technician by the name of Paul Bateson, um, 
was apparently in a gay relationship with a, a reporter for Variety. And the two of them had went out one night, gotten drunk, high, uh, you know, had sexual relations. And something had happened where, like in a fit of passion, I don't know if they, you know, what led up to this, but Paul Bateson killed uh, killed this reporter. The guy's name was Addison Verrill and left him in uh, Verrill's West Village apartment, basically. Um, there was a, there was another reporter that, uh, came upon all this, Arthur Bell, who was investigating, uh, the death of, uh, Beryl. And one night randomly gets a phone call from someone who's, uh, who's claiming to take, uh, you know, credit for the murder. And it, it's Paul Bateson and it's, and he's in the movie. He's this blonde haired guy who's, he's helping with the arteriogram, but it's just crazy that, I mean, this happened, it happened in, in 77, September 14th, 77, just four years after the movie was filmed, this guy killed somebody. So it's kind of crazy yeah. that, that, that was going on. Um, Let's see. And and the worst thing about this, the curse on the movie, and, and this isn't really a curse, it's just how shitty people are. Linda Blair actually needed real-life security after the movie was uh, came out oh, because yeah. filmgoers uh, attacked her as if she was really possessed. And the shitty thing about all this is the fact that the kid who played Damien, which we'll get to in a, in a later podcast, uh, in the movie The Omen, nobody gave him any any crap over him, and he was actually the evil, you know, uh, antichrist in his movie. But no, he he was oh, fine. Yeah. Uh, Linda Blair, you know, the the poor, you know, innocent girl who's getting, you know, uh, attacked by this demon. You know, let's just go up there and physically attack her because she's got, you know, Zazu or Zuzu in her pizza guy. You know, pizza dude. Just crazy. It's it's awful that people have to act that way and they can't separate fiction from reality, but I guess that is what it is. Um, a couple of... Well, I'm going to lighten the mood <laughs> just a little bit. And I wouldn't really call this a curse, but this was in the curses. Um, it was just... It wasn't a curse. It was more of bad luck, like shit that just happened. It was like, that's just our fucking luck. But... <clears throat> so, a statue, a real-life statue, obviously, you saw the statue in the movie of the pizza dude. Um... <laughs> Well, they had the they had it coming to obviously um, where they were being filmed, where the studio was, but somehow, some way, they basically sent it to Australia. It got sent to Australia, um, <laughs> and they get a call saying, "Hey, we got a statue of a penis over here, basically at the embassy in Australia," and the director's like, "Are you fucking serious?" Because it had the studio's name on it and everything. And I, I didn't hear into detail. That's kind of where that part of the podcast ended off. Like, are you fucking serious? Because it was just like a string of bad luck that they had been having. Obviously, they had the fire and other shit going on on the set. This was just like one thing. is like, we don't have time for this right now. <laughs> so, yeah, the pizza dude was mistaken as a large phallic symbol and uh, ended up at the Australian embassy. Oh, yeah. Um uh, I, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, other than the fact that, you know, <laughs> uh, I, gu I guess, uh, you know, pizza dude, you know, penis dude, I, I guess it, you know, there, there you are. I mean, it, you know, at least he, uh, I, I guess his, uh, him being made into such a large, you know, icon of, of that, you know, might've been for somebody's benefit in that case. That's what they thought Who it was looks for. looks at that and mistakes it for a penis is what I want to know. I, just, I don't think I've ever seen a penis that looks like that. Somebody, just saying. somebody really weird is all I can say. Um, 
That yeah, that's all you can throw out there. A uh, couple of little bits of trivia, real quick. Stacy Keach, uh, very famous, uh, you know, actor. Or, you know, uh, he's one of those character actors. Uh, he was almost hired to play Father Karras. I don't know how that would have went. Stacy Keach, I mean, he he's great in what he was in, but I mean, I, I I can't imagine him in that role. And then the part of Lieutenant Kinderman almost went to veteran actor George C. Scott, which. Uh, it, there, there's a movie that we'll probably do in another season called The Changeling that George C. Scott's in. I mean, he was very method. He was very staid in how he, he was acting. I don't think he would have made that good of a Lieutenant Kinderman, so I think they did good with what they went with, even though I would have preferred to seen more of the Columbo-type character he was in the novel. But, you know, it, they, they got a good actor for who they got to play him. So just kind of funny yeah. that they got those, I mean, those two big names. But the reason they wasn't hired specifically is because, again, going back to Friedkin, he wanted people who were lesser known, so it gave it more of an authentic feel so which worked really really well they really made a big deal to keep big actors and actresses out although they did ask um oh god who's that one actress she's also a big old exercise guru back in the day oh or um uh jane fonda okay okay i was thinking of the i was thinking of the lady from greece uh didn't I think she went on to be like a bunch of but that was in the eighties when she did all her exercise stuff, so No, Jane Fonda basically was like, Why the fuck would I want to be a part of this piece of shit film? Well ultimately is what happened. So they did they did at first seek out big names, but then it kinda turned into a you know what? No. <laughs> this is what we're gonna do. And actually there was actually a few actors that came and said, Look, you need to hire me. Like, was it the the actor that played Karis or was it I'm not sure which priest it was, but they had already had somebody hired to play this to play this part. And they said, okay, we're going to go with this person right here. Seriously, one of the actors walked up and said, you will never find a better, I'm pretty sure it was Karis, honestly. You'll never find a better actor. Uh, you need to get me involved. And they had already paid this other actor who was going to be playing Father Karis and replaced him with the actor who currently obviously played Karis. Well, I mean, they had a good choice, and I mean, for his uh, uh, just his uh, just facial acting, like we've said before, just the 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 acting he could do with just his facial gestures was, uh, I mean, you know, worthy of him being in the film. So I, I can see why they went with who they did for Karis. Um, yeah, I mean, no, it, it really worked. It's just insane that you would already have somebody. They had to convince the studio, basically. So same thing with Ellen Burstyn. Ellen Burstyn, she went up and she basically said, hey, look, you you have to put me in this film. You'll never have a better, you know, Chris, this part was made for me. Blah, blah, blah. Same shit, different day. I swear to God. Although they did not have another actress already in mind. Um, they, they hired her. I think they were actually having a hard time finding somebody to fill the spot of Chris. Um, and then Linda Blair was kind of an interesting find in itself because they literally they were interviewing hundreds and hundreds of girls and i think her mom was the one that kind of pushed for an interview even though they were done for the day and said hey you know check her out it's really important and he said fuck it what else do we have to do you know and <laughs> hey history was made um Actually, going into just the differences from the novel and the film, just a few more things uh, for that before we wrap that part portion up. 
<clears throat> the the part of Ellen Burstyn was actually something that I had my biggest contention with because in the novel I think they and it, it's partly Blatty's fault. I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw the blame on him because he wrote the screenplay. So I mean the, the the way that Ellen acted was just based upon how she's written. So I can't really blame her. But in the novel, they, they painted Chris as more of like a happy-go-lucky type of, you know, just, you know, whatever comes may come type, you know, character from the get-go. Real kind, real nice, you know, easygoing, you know, person to everybody she met. And then slowly throughout the novel, it showed like her, you know, just the effects of seeing her daughter, you know, had on her. She went from, you know, to being totally like, you know, a nervous wreck, you know, crying outbursts and that sort of thing. I felt like Ellen Burstyn started the movie out like as a, as a person playing Chris as like a super serious type character, like, you know, and then she just devolved into his, you know, screaming, you know, hysterics. And yeah. that's probably, and that's my biggest contention because if you, if you read the novel, it's it, the mo- the novel focuses more on the effects on Chris than it really does Regan. Regan is there, but Regan's not really there uh, in the sense that, when she gets fully taken over by the creature, by, you know, pizza guy or Zuzu, it's, um, she's not, she's not in it at that point. It's, it's, she's, she has no interaction. I mean, um, Blatty himself even said one of the beautiful things about Father Karras is that Father Karras, when, at the time that he meets and decides that he's going to save Regan, He's never once met the real Regan. He's only met the demon. So he, he sacrifices yeah. his life for a girl he's never literally met. Like, he never met her Ultimately, at all. yeah. So it, it's just kind of funny that in the... I mean, they, they make the movie more about you You stay with Regan. You kind of see, like, her, you know, uh, just deterioration and that sort of thing. But in the novel, it's more like it's told from Chris's perspective how she's just like... She's, you know, normally just whatever comes at me, just I'll, you know, I'll just deal with, you know, go with the flow. But then like this hits her so hard, like she, and, and the worst thing that the movie does is it takes all agency away from her because in the novel, she is the one that decides to go for a priest. It's, it's all tied back into the fact that she, uh, is given a book by a character that's not even in the movie. And for good reason, there's a mo- there's a character in the book called Mary Jo Perrin, who's this basically socialite and pseudo psychic that is at the party yeah. the same night that Regan has her, you know, urination problem. And <laughs> she, she gives a book to, uh, as she's, as she's leaving the party, she gives a book to, uh, Chris and, or maybe she delivers it to her later. But the, the thing, the bad part about the novel is she's never in it again after that. They never resolve anything about her story. Mary Jo is just there for that, and she's gone. So I can totally see why he wrote her out of the movie. She serves no purpose other than to hand that book off. And honestly, Sharon could have been the one to hand it because Sharon's also kind of curious about religion, yeah. so they could have had her hand the book off. But basically, it's a book about uh, demonology and you know and, and all the stuff that's going on. And it's one of the reasons that Karis initially will not take on the case because when he sees that book is involved, when he finds that book in the house, and it's he's like, oh hell no. He, no, well no, he he's when he sees the book, he's like, well, Regan is only a spe-, you know he would have normally said, you know, he first asked Chris, he's like. Does she have any exposure to religion? Chris is like, no, um, you know, we don't have any. But he sees the book and it's talking about all these demon possessions and all that. And he's like, well, that's where she's making all this crap up from. She saw the book; it was under her bed. So, so the book is like a major, you know, plot point. It both keeps Karis from treating her whenever he should have, and it also provides Chris the, you know, the thing that she needs to say, okay, this is possession. I'm tired of dealing with these doctors. I'm going to get my daughter help. But in the movie, they take all the way from her because then they have the male doctor and the. 
movie saying, well, maybe you should give her this to kind of shock her into it. And at that point, she's just like, whatever, my daughter's done. All I can do is sit here and scream. And it just killed me because it's basically it makes her a weaker character in the movie. And I, and I, I just don't like that. I, I wish that they would have somehow worked it in where she was the one that decided to go after the, the exorcism, that she was the one that was arguing for her daughter's behalf instead of having the doctors throw it in her face that way. Um, but, you know, like I said, they, they, they kind of changed that out. Another thing that, that the book was uh, another plot point that the book really involved in was the fact that in the, in the novel, uh, uh, Burt Dennings had this weird habit where he would like take pieces of scripts that he was working on at the time, or he was, you know, using at the time and he would tear off like a perfect strip at the edge of it and eat it. Don't know why he did it, but that was just a character flaw he had. Well, whenever the book is found under Regan's bed shortly after Burt dies in the novel, uh, Chris is flipping through the book and she sees that one of the pages has a thin strip perfectly tore off the edge and that's how she knows that Regan was the one that killed Burke. So that it ties all of a bunch of things together that, you know, don't really play that. I mean, they don't have time for it in the movie, but I mean, I, I think it plays better that, that they had that in there. Um, other than that, the, you know, Father Marin, I, I kind of wish there was a little bit more with him. They really emphasize in the book that Father Marin is like this this person who is so perfect in his faith that when he just enters the room at the end of the movie or enters the house at the end of the movie, like everybody involved, even Father Karras, just like calm down. They're like, he's here to, to help us. He, like, he has this calming aura about him. Like, he's just, they, he's, he's so, like, I'm going to take care of this, don't worry about it, that everybody around him becomes, you know, stronger and more Probably calm. confident in his abilities, yeah. you know, and, and, more than anything. I feel like in the film, I mean, granted, you hear it a few times, but, like, as soon as he walks in, you just hear the loudest roar from Regan, and I'm like, does this demon know that it's a fucking about to be on, like, Donkey Kong? Well, in the, like, in the novel, it it's it's insinuated that the demon that he had like that had almost killed him that he had exercised right before the last one he did before he started becoming an archaeologist and and slowly doing that was that um he had um was was the one that was in Regan like he it came back like the it was two old foes like staring each other down at the end of the movie so so we meet again yeah it was basically that and. I, the the thing that I just I just wish that they I mean would have had a little bit more in there because like he has this perfect scene with Father Karras when they're like in between like the exorcisms when they're both kind of wore down and like he's he's telling and Karras is like having this you know another one of his crisis of faith moments and he's like Marin how do you do this like how how can you have faith and he's like listen he said I had a crisis of faith on my own he said I've always had this in a uh, this problem where you know I'm supposed to love everybody equally but some people just repulse me and he said I and I've and I've and even this day I've not got over it but he said I realized something he said when I act out of love and I and I do loving things for people that I that repulse me that is an even even greater uh act and you know or show of faith in God that I'm willing to do that for somebody that I don't feel physical or emotional you know uh, you know love for so he said basically he, he he used his weakness as his strength and that's why he was so confident and it just kind of plays off you know as a good comparison to Karis who was kind of like I mean it, it literally takes like his his own death to kind of bring his own faith back so um just pretty much just kind of an interesting you know uh comparison between the two um 
not really anything. There's probably a lot you could go into the book that it doesn't get covered in the movie. Well, yeah, I mean, they that kind of goes without saying. You know? the, the only other major thing they did was that Kinderman originally was going after uh, Carl, the 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 male um, you know housekeeper, because there was a whole oh, yeah. there was a whole subplot where Carl was actually like skipping out at night randomly and like you know to uh, saying he was going to the movies. What but the fuck is going? Yeah, on? He, but he wasn't going to the movies. He was going to visit his daughter, who's this junkie basically, and his wife, Willie, doesn't know that she's even still alive, so he's been keeping that from Willie and kind of funneling money to his junkie daughter, and uh, Kinderman finds out, and he, he's a nice guy, so he keeps it under wraps so that it doesn't, you know, disturb the, you know, the family equilibrium, but... Uh, I'm sorry, but <laughs> the people that stayed in that house, God bless them, because I would not be sticking around for well, that bullshit that was going well, on. Well, the worst thing about it is, and, and, and this is the biggest, uh, the other biggest change in the movie, all that stuff at the end where Regan's doing all this weird crap, you know, the, the, the I mean, she does vomit a lot at the end of the movie, and, or at the end of the book and the novel, but a lot of the other stuff she was doing it didn't really happen. It was more psychological attacks. Um, everybody who stayed in that house got attacked psychologically, and they got something revealed about them that they really didn't want to get out. You know, Father. Oh, and that's what usually happens. Yeah, fa- what you, you hear about it in exorcisms, anyway. Yeah, Father Karras, of course, it came out about his mother and his guilt. Uh, Carl, uh, the fact that their daughter was still alive, got thrown out there right in front of Willie. So she, you know, obviously threw a fit. You know, you've not told me my. You said my daughter was dead. You know, our daughter was dead. Uh, they had a whole that you know had a whole issue on them. Sharon, the housekeeper, actually had an unhealthy sexual attraction to Father Karras. That gets revealed during all this all these scenes. <laughs> so <laughs> it's um it's kind of uh it's kind of funny and you know in, in a weird way. But I mean they they cut that out of the movie. It's kind of funny. It's fucked up. Like why demons? Why you gotta spill the tea? <laughs> like why don't you mind your damn business? Yeah, I mean exactly. It's just kind of all that stuff was added in there. Um. Dang. Uh, as far as the the changes from the extended release to the theatrical, we've covered most of them. The only one that really doesn't make any sense to me is that for some reason, the extended release they open on the McNeil house instead of the scene at Baghdad. I don't know why they do that because it's it, no. The extended release I watched opened up in Baghdad. Okay, well, I, that's what I read was that extended they opened up on the house. So, but anyways, the book mm-hmm. opens up on Baghdad, so it's really, I mean, really it. Yeah, it opens up with them kind of like digging for archaeology. You know, archaeological <laughs> dig. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and coming up on different, like random, different, you know, things that they found, and look at this, look at this. Right. Um. So, and then you get the house scene where uh, Marin is leaving, and he's like, "I wish you would stay." And he says he's got something to take care of, but it's like, what? It never really says what, I, and it's like, did he know? I know. I th- well, oh, Marin. Yeah, I think it's uh. He, he senses that the that the evil's coming, so that's why he had to leave. Mm, okay, that makes sense now. <clears throat> all, all the other little scenes outside of that spider walk scene uh, are all like basically little things that you know were thrown back in there that kind of tie into stuff that's in the novel. I mean, they, they're good and they're bad, except for all the scenes with the, the faces and stuff. That's kind of dumb. I don't know why Friedkin wanted to add that back in, but the... So many, yeah. Yeah, and the spider walk scene, you know, was cool, but it, like I said, it don't really fit into the theme of the, the movie. the shit out of me. Look at, okay, for the weaklings like me, it scared the shit out of me like when i first saw that i was like fuck no what am i doing why am i doing this because i don't know why you waited till your mid-20s i think i was early 20s when i watched this film but my parents wouldn't let me watch this film it was a big hell to the no you're not watching this. i just never watched it because i don't know i never had really an interest in it I, it just looked i i 
I hate to be one of those people because I mean, I hate, I don't really like those people. You know, the people that like look back at George Romero's like Night of the Living Dead and it's like, oh, look at that old oh, movie. Yeah. That's, you know, that's old school. That's garbage, you know. That's stupid stage Yeah, I, I just, I look back at that and I'm like, well, we got all these better exorcism movies. Why would I go back? You know, I don't know why I was being like that. Yeah. But it, you okay, know. Okay, well, I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> no, I was scared shitless when I first saw it. I, yeah, I had a, I didn't sleep. Shoot, even like when I, I knew. When we were going to do Devil in the Details, I was like, okay, you know, I know we're going to talk about The Exorcist, but maybe it's not going to be the first film. Maybe he's not going to want to do The Exorcist. (laughs) Maybe I won't have to watch it. And it's the first fucking one we did. And I started having nightmares almost immediately. I mean, they went away. I I get over it real fast. Um, Last night, I wouldn't say I watched it last night. I would not say I was terrified. I was very resistant i did not want to watch the film i kept repeating how i didn't like it um and not because it was a bad movie it's because i was scared and i knew what was coming i did pretty well but the insomnia i don't know why i had the insomnia i wasn't afraid of anything in particular i didn't think i was going to see something in the corner you know creepy little uh real life thing on my end um i I didn't have any problem watching the movie i never do um without getting our rating here in a minute but the the novel when i was reading it kind of got creeped out the scenes that are leading that during the oppression phase where it's talking about all the the sounds and everything else because those are all the parts always the parts of like you know haunted movies that which are my thing uh that always get to me and i was getting i got kind of creeped out reading them one night before i went to bed I woke up in the middle of the night, and it had to be around 3 o'clock, which, you know, anybody who's in the supernatural stuff knows. The witching yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah. I woke up feeling like I couldn't breathe, and I could not go back, oh, I could not go back to sleep. My heart was racing. Um, I went and, of course, with everything going on right now, I'm not going to get, you know, but real world, I, you know, went and checked my pulse oximeter readings, and, you know, I checked my temperature, and everything was fine, except my oxygen level was slightly lower than it should have been, and my heart was racing out of nowhere. And it took me forever to go back to sleep. And then several days after that, I had this massive blood vessel in my left hand just burst while I was, like, shopping. And, like, it, even to this day, I've still got, like, a small knot there. But, like, I mean, it was intense pain. And, like, it was – and I'm just like, here we go. The the curse <laughs> continues, you know. Pro- the bullshit happening. Yeah. So, anyways, that, that, that weird stuff happened. But, you know, um, as for more, after reading the novel, not necessarily watching the movie. So, um Getting into that because we're kind of you know running long here. Oh, we're getting there. We're wrapping it up. Yep. Uh, so we've got a ghost rating for the podcast. Uh, how terrifying a movie is, or how much we enjoy it. However you want to you know rate that. Uh, and it goes from one, which is Casper. Uh, two is, uh, in my opinion, Patrick Swayze from the movie Ghost. You know, Sam Waits the character. <laughs> Uh, not you know he's got a few powers but he's not really that scary either uh you've got three is bruce willis uh from uh, sixth sense uh spoiler alert for anybody who doesn't know that he's dead in that movie uh or malcolm crowe is his character you know spoiler alert <laughs> not not really scary in the i mean he's not really scary as a character but the fact that the man continued to work after he found out he was dead scares the living hell out of me so he gets a three True, yeah uh, that is terrifying. Four, four is uh, Mrs. Massey, the the ghostly woman from the, the room two thirty seven, The Shining. Which, if anybody's ever watched or read that reading, it's even worse. That is the most horrifying ghost in uh, in, in movie history. So outside the one that we're getting ready to go to next, and well, not really horrifying, but he, you know. But anyways, it just scared the crap out of me. So she she's a solid four on the the terrifying uh, you know rating scale. And then five, of course, is Beetlejuice because he's the ghost with the most. So he he gets ghost top with billing. The most, yep. So, what is your rating for this movie? 
Um, well, I for reasons I've pretty much already stated how pre-terrified I was and what I put myself through psychologically, just anticipating watching the film. Um, I'm also going to give it credit for I am able to look at it in retrospect and see how amazing the film was for its time. Uh, also, the terror that it caused in real-life people that watched the movie, myself included, I'm going to give it a four. Okay, that's uh, totally understandable. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Massey would approve, I would imagine, and when she's not trying to... Uh whatever she ends up doing with Danny. I don't even want to think about that. He was a poor little kid for God's <laughs> sake. Um, I'm going to give this a three uh, or Bruce Willis because uh, with an asterisk, I'll give it, it's, it's a four to me. If you go back and you look at it with a perspective of somebody, you know, try to put yourself in the position of somebody who's watching it in a time frame that when it came out, but for me, it's always been a three. I mean, it's, it's got horrifying things to it, but it's, it's kind of, it's never really been one that's really frightened me. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not necessarily from a faith point of view. I mean, I'm religious, but it's just, I, I just, just the movie doesn't, it doesn't hit that special thing for me to put it over the top. So I want to give it a three with an asterisk. It's, it's a four if you try to give it some kind of scale or some kind of perspective, but you know, as it stands watching, especially in light of the conjuring and some other films that, you know, have, have, base really benefited from the fact that it exists i mean if it wasn't for the exorcist we wouldn't have the conjuring series so you know true um those movies to me are just so much more terrifying so i'm going to give it a three and um that's that's my rating for the movie there we go there we have it we i think we successfully just completed our first podcast i think we did and i think that uh if anybody's still listening i think that they're probably glad that we've finally wrapped our discussion up shut the hell up already (laughs) well um yes thanks everybody for taking a listen Um, we really appreciate it no we do Uh, we are going to have more in-depth discussions on other shows remember this season so from october 2020 through october what 2021 um, shall we just predict it <laughs> uh yeah it's that that'll be the season we're going to try to go for a baker's dozen get a good uh unlucky 13 in there we're going to throw a few little oddballs in there around april to kind of mix things up that might not be horror related but uh they'll definitely be in the genre but we'll uh We'll uh, go for about 13 uh, episodes here and kind of see how things go. I think we're anticipating the next one to be The Witch, so stay tuned for that. That's a, that's a good creepy period piece that that's I appreciate. That's a good one. Um, well, Lots of that to see, lots of scenery. Uh, um, you can catch us right for now until we pull up our YouTube page. You can catch us on Blue Collar BS on YouTube. Um, lots of good podcasts on that channel. Too. <laughs> yes, check out you know Blue Collar BS. We also have Hot Mess Express, two ladies, just uh, bitches being bitches <laughs> on there. So you can catch that. And really, that's all I have to say for now. Until next time. Peace be with you. And with your spirit. Good night. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs>